You're listening to Metamodernism, a production of the Golden Age Collection, a 501c3 nonprofit based out of sunny San Francisco, California. Metamodernism. I'm your host, Alexander Wool. Today on the show, I've got a great guest, an aspiring screenwriter and a dear friend of mine, Oliver White. Stay tuned for a wide-ranging conversation, touching on everything from Ghostbusters, child psychology, and media theory. And later in the episode, I open up the Golden Age collection for Oliver to peruse. While he may not yet be a household name, the conversation Oliver and I have is a quintessential example of the kind of free-flowing discussion that I had envisioned when starting this podcast. But more on that in just a bit. In the many months that have passed since the last episode, there have been several noteworthy stories that I've wanted to weigh in on. But due to the length and depth of one story in particular, all others will need to wait. As an independent podcast producer without any corporate sponsors, I'm not afraid to pull any punches on this podcast. But my rule of thumb is to always be punching up at the big guys, not punching down at the little ones. And since Oliver and I talk at length about Wes Anderson's Rushmore, let's start with some perennial advice from Bill Murray as Herman Bloom, given in a speech to Rushmore students. But here's my advice to the rest of you. Take dead aim on the rich boys. Get them in the crosshairs and take them down. Just remember, they can buy anything, but they can't buy backbone. Don't let them forget that. So with that in mind, let's talk about the disastrous fallout in the wake of the Warner Brothers Discovery merger, which itself is a result of the poorly executed AT&T Warner Brothers merger that happened in 2018. For context with that merger, I'll be linking to Adam Conover's excellent takedown in the show notes. AT&T's merger with Warner Brothers wasn't as profitable as AT&T had hoped, so in early 2022, AT&T spun off Warner Media for $43 billion to be merged with Discovery. On paper, this media merger was a bad idea from the start. While both are media companies, they had very different media strategies, radically different content libraries, and in turn, different audience demographics. However, no one could have predicted just how badly things would go. And I think this merger is an invaluable case study into what happens when the desire for corporate profits overtakes the creative vision to make art. Shortly after David Zaslav took over as president and CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, the bodies started piling up. In an unprecedented move, David canceled the release of a completed film, Batgirl, which had a budget of $90 million. Now, if you've listened to my podcast before, you know my stance on superhero movies, so I'm not going to shed a tear over a shelved superhero movie, but the fact that a major studio decided to flat out cancel the release of a completed film is noteworthy, not only because it happened, but because it came without warning and was potentially done so as a tax write-off. The cast and crew did not learn of the cancellation until after the New York Post broke the story on August 2nd. The Wrap reported that Warner Brothers Discovery felt that the film simply did not work, while The Guardian reported that this put Batgirl among the most expensive canceled cinematic projects ever. The Rolling Stone wrote that test screening responses were very negative, which could have been a factor in the decision. A Warner Brothers Discovery spokesperson gave a generic statement explaining the cancellation, which reads, quote, The decision to not release Batgirl reflects on our leadership's strategic shift as it relates to the DC Universe and HBO Max. Leslie Grace is an incredibly talented actor 
and this decision was not a reflection of her performance. We are incredibly grateful to the filmmakers and cast of Batgirl, and we hope to collaborate with everyone again in the near future, end quote. A subsequent report from Variety indicated that Warner Brothers Discovery had concluded that writing off Batgirl for a tax break would be the most financially sound way of recouping its cost. Instead of moving the film to a theatrical release with an additional investment, selling it to another distributor, or just releasing it on HBO Max. Hundreds, if not thousands of people worked on the production of this film. Warner Brothers spent $90 million to make the thing, and yet it's somehow more financially advantageous for them to simply lock the completed movie away in the Warner Brothers vaults than it is to release on its own streaming service. Hot on the heels of the Batgirl cancellation, in August, David Zaslav axed many creative roles within Warner Brothers, essentially firing most of the people behind Cartoon Network. Many titles within the Warner Brothers library were suddenly pulled off of HBO Max without any warning to the creators. In the past, I've talked on this podcast about how streaming services give you the illusion of ownership, and as the result of this media paradigm, big media companies have the power to withdraw or revise content at their own discretion. But even I was surprised at how quickly some TV shows were scrubbed from HBO Max and subsequently removed from social media. To give you some insight into how truly insane and dystopian this move was, I wanted to read some excerpts from a blog post by Owen Dennis, the creator of an excellent animated show, Infinity Train, which aired on Cartoon Network for the first two seasons before migrating to HBO Max for seasons three and four. Owen's experience from inside the belly of the beast is insightful, and it strikes at the heart of the issue, which is that making media is a tug of war between art and commerce. His comments perfectly align with the values and mission of the Golden Age Collection. This is a long blog post that I've lightly edited for the podcast, but the full post will be linked in the show notes. The post is called, so, uh, what's going on with Infinity Train? The announcement on Wednesday of Infinity Train, Summer Camp Island, The Fungies, and so many other shows being taken off HBO Max was a shock to all of us. Not just to fans, but to the creators and artists that made the shows as well. I had no idea it was coming. Neither did any of the show creators I've talked with, nor any of their representatives. People have been working behind the scenes for days now to try to figure out what's going on. A thousand phone calls, texts, and emails have been sent. But the problem is that the entirety of Warner and Discovery are undergoing a merger. This means that people who you would normally talk to have been fired, moved, or quit. So no one has any idea how to get the information they need right now. This is the same thing that happened in the early months of the merger with AT&T. Never cheer for a corporate merger. They may help about 100 people and hurt thousands. Because of all this confusion, I thought I'd share what I know as of today, Saturday, August 20th. So far, everything related to or mentioning Infinity Train has been removed from HBO Max, Cartoon Network, HBO Max and Cartoon Network's Twitter accounts, HBO Max and Cartoon Network's YouTube accounts, and all streaming music services. I was also assured late yesterday evening that the show is not going to be used for that tax write-off loophole that is now being overwhelmingly associated with Batgirl and Scoob Holiday Haunt. But will this continue to be true? I don't know. How did this chaos happen? No idea. I'm told from various sources that this wasn't supposed to happen until next week sometime so that Cartoon Network and HBO Max could have the time to tell the show's creators and artists what's going on. That's obviously not what happened, and now this is where that disorganization has gotten us. Cartoon Network warned them not to do this as it would hurt relationships with creators and talent, but they clearly do not care what any of this looks like publicly, much less how we feel about it. Why did they do this? No one knows, but what we do know is it was a direct order from Discovery, 
and it's about saving money somehow. The general consensus is that it has something to do with paying animators and artists for their residuals that they're owed for their work. You will sometimes see an argument online of, well, they were already paying the artist to make it, so what are they complaining about? Do not listen to someone who says this because they either don't understand or don't care about what our pay structure is. Our pay is not complete without the ongoing residuals. Those residuals aren't paid directly to the artists. They go to our union to pay for our health care. So not paying artists residuals on their work means they are indirectly defunding our health care. This also means that music and actor residuals will stop. CNBC has estimated that this will likely save Discovery somewhere in the tens of millions of dollars which is a very small drop in the bucket in the $3 billion that David Zaslav said he wants to save by 2023. CNBC also says everything getting pulled from HBO Max was infrequently watched according to people familiar with the matter. First off, no one is familiar with the matter because the entire industry has been trying to reach people that are familiar with the matter for three days and haven't been able to do so. However, if they were able to find someone familiar with the matter and it was about frequency, Discovery has failed to show statistics or provide what metrics they're using. By all publicly available metrics, Infinity Train was in the 91st percentile in children's media, and at its height was 17 times more popular than the average TV show. Or maybe it was underperforming. No way to know for sure, as they haven't provided anyone with the actual numbers or metrics that they're using, not even their shareholders. Is the show gone forever? I don't believe so. The problem is I can't be entirely sure if the information that I'm getting is truthful or if it's just to placate us so we'll stop pestering them with so many questions. They certainly haven't earned anyone's trust with the way they've handled all of this, so obviously take all of this with a grain or two or a million of salt. In the meantime, I'll be working with my management team on figuring out some other kind of fate for the show. Why did they delete all of the social media if it's not gone forever? No clue. I can't even expand on this in any way, that's how little of a clue I or anyone else has. I think that the way Discovery went about this is incredibly unprofessional, rude, and just straight up slimy. I think most everyone who makes anything feels this way. Across the industry, talent is mad, agents are mad, lawyers and managers are mad, even execs at these companies are mad. What's the point of making something, spending years working on it, putting in nights and weekends, doing their terrible notes, losing sleep, and not seeing our families, if it's just going to be taken away and shot in the backyard. It's so incredibly discouraging that they're definitely not going to be getting their best work out of whoever decides to stay. We're working at the intersection of art and commerce, but the people in charge have clearly forgotten that they'll have no commerce without the art. Is pirating a movie or TV show ethical? That's up to you. We're talking about art here. Art is for people to see and experience. Art makes up our culture. It's the most human thing that humans do. No other animal makes art except for us. Our culture is preserved through our art. The most popular kind of art we have currently is television and movies, which means that these are the greatest and most widely seen depictions of our culture at the moment. The issue we have right now is that most of our well-known art is, for the most part, owned by about five gigantic multinational corporations. That means they also own our culture. And if you own our culture, then you also own our history and our access to it. Should a handful of companies own that, much less have the monopoly they have on it right now? I don't think so. So the question you have to ask yourself becomes, if a giant corporation has stopped me from having the ability to access my own culture, is it okay for me to watch a copy that doesn't funnel any money towards them, doesn't create scarcity of the art, and doesn't make a mark on some algorithm's metrics? Only you can answer that for yourself. And what happens if you're no longer given any chance to access or pay for the art? 
We're now talking about restricting you from seeing and experiencing your own culture and history purely because someone is creating artificial scarcity. Now we're talking about the preservation of our history. I often own multiple copies of media that I care about, a digital version that I can quickly access on my TV, and a physical or pirated copy for myself with no DRM rights attached to it. Basically, I own one for convenience and one for preservation during the apocalypse, or the corporate equivalent of an apocalypse. Does this logic hold true in every kind of art in every instance? No, absolutely not. That's why I say this is something for you to choose. Just make sure you're doing it for the right reasons, and not because you don't feel like paying a couple dollars to someone who labored to make something. Artists need to pay their rent, artists need healthcare, and artists have a right to show their work in the way they intended. Remember, a percentage of that money does go to them. So just think about what you're doing ethically, and don't try to justify it post hoc. So that was Owen Dennis's account of the chicanery that is ongoing inside of the Warner Brothers Discovery merger. I can only imagine how disorienting it must be to have your own show scrubbed from existence online and everyone you've ever worked with fired all in a matter of days. Having said all of this, it gives me immense schadenfreude to report that Warner Brothers Discovery has lost $3.4 billion in the first quarter since the merger and $2.3 billion in the second quarter since the merger. This makes for a combined loss of over $5.7 billion as the result of this ill-conceived and disastrously executed media merger that may likely go down as one of the worst media mergers in history. Before I get to my chat with Oliver, first, some backstory. Oliver and I have known each other for several years now and have been aiming to record an episode ever since I first started the podcast. After talking about it in the abstract, we decided to set a firm date and just roll with it. On the morning of the recording, we first went out to get some brunch and discuss the podcast. We settled on Sears Fine Food on Powell Street, which serves a pretty mean stack of lingonberry pancakes. We were given the choice of indoor seating or sitting outside in the newly constructed parklets along the street. It was a nice morning, so we chose the parklet, and I'm glad we did, because as we're sitting curbside eating our brunch, I look up to see a familiar face turn around the corner and walk down Powell Street. It was comedian and podcasting deity Mark Marin, without whom this podcast wouldn't exist. Having Mark appear out of thin air as I'm prepping for my podcast episode is the podcaster's equivalent of coming across a four-leaf clover. As he's walking down the street, I'm doing the mental calculus for my next move. Do I get up and leave the table to say hi, or is that too much? Is it better to just wave and acknowledge him? I ended up making eye contact and waving, saying, Hey Mark, as we walked by. I'd forgotten that he was in town for a show that evening at the Palace of Fine Arts. Seeing him that morning was a sign that I should go get a ticket to the show. I did, and it was great. His set was dark and hilarious, with topics ranging from COVID-19, Trumpsters, and the tense relationship he has with his father. After the show, I met him outside and had a chance to recount the tale from earlier that morning. I told him how much of an influence his podcast had had on mine and how serendipitous it felt running into him as we were prepping for the episode. And like the goober I am, I left without telling him the name of the podcast. So Mark, if you're listening, the name of the podcast is Metamodernism. But you would already know that because you're listening to the podcast. Just a note about the audio. It was a warm day when we recorded this episode. And like most buildings in San Francisco, Mine does not come equipped with air conditioning, which meant we had a fan buzzing the entire episode as we talked. Steve Norelzi helped with the edit and cleaning up the background noise. The resulting adjustments filtered out the fan noise frequencies, but it made us sound like we were recording this episode remotely. However strange the audio may sound at times, 
The adjustments were preferential to the incessant buzzing. But Oliver was a pleasure to talk to, and as I mentioned up top, the conversation we have is a quintessential example of the kind of range of topics I wanted to cover on this podcast. So enjoy my talk with Oliver White. So what we're going to do now is we're just going to test some levels and we can sure. move it up and around and back. Yeah, and yeah. I didn't know with your height how we, oh, yeah. how we should uh, kind of position this. And I think I'm coming in pretty clear. Okay. Why don't you just this? go ahead and start talking? You can, yeah. you know. Inside Primetime, Slimed, The Norseman, uh, 1980 to 1981, Mad Men, Wild and Crazy Guys. Is that the check, check, SNL? Check. Yeah. Have you have you heard about that? I, I yeah. saw the sketch, but I haven't seen the Yeah. So this book. book, it's nonfiction. It's not really biography, but it's basically all about that era in comedy. So mm-hmm. interesting you know, time. The you know. late 70s, you know, Chevy Chase, Steve Martin, Mark yep. Short, like yeah. all of that crew. Yeah. And uh, basically how they came out of sketch comedy and into, you know, revolutionizing sure. the modern Hollywood system, which talking about people uh do you know ivan reitman he died recently just died really? yeah mel so, brooks po- posted about him on yeah yeah really sad he directed ghostbusters produced animal house he like just had his hand in like pretty much all of those Can comedies I ask you a quick, like i watched yes. i introduced a japanese friend of mine to ghostbusters and i've yes. completely forgotten about the blowjob scene oh yeah and we we're both watching it and i remember thinking like this went way over my head as a kid oh yeah but what the hell were they thinking like why, uh, well, why is that so scene even in there there is one answer to that question okay. and that is dan Aykroyd. <laughs> and if you don't so i love dan Aykroyd. he's he's, he's a he's a kook he's such a kook so like first of all dan is a motorhead he cares a lot about cars and about engines and specifically like police stuff and like police gear okay like even back in the 70s he was very much like a gearhead and like interested in how things worked and whatnot oh very good but he also is like big into like ghosts and ufos okay and he talked it so this is on the joe rogan podcast he talked to joe rogan about how he has had a sexual relation with oh a ghost. Oh my god, I gotta listen to this. And, and yeah, <laughs> so this is like, you know, Dan Eckert. Yeah. So that scene is nonfiction for him. Um, <laughs> it is, it is something that he feels <sighs> happened to him. Yeah. And he wanted it to be in a family comedy about ghosts or whatever. So talk about Ghostbusters real quick. I don't know what your relationship with it is, but I didn't grow up on Ghostbusters. Sure. And I, but I loved the cast. And for me, Ghostbusters was a movie that had all of the people that I liked in it, but I didn't, the whole like supernatural elements of it, like, you know, anything that didn't really wasn't grounded in this world, it wasn't super appealing to me, Mm -hmm. but there's this cult fandom around it, especially with the reboots and whatnot, that people are like, oh, don't touch my childhood. This is like an, an integral part of who I am. It's just interesting to see the amount of people that came out of the woodwork for that movie specifically. I didn't recognize that this was like, I thought that as far as those guys went, that there were better movies that they made. But it, for whatever reason, Ghostbusters really locked on, culturally speaking. And maybe it was the marketing with the lunchboxes and the kids' toys. Big and deal. the, the yeah. you know, I think there was a cartoon and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but I don't know. I mean, was that something that was prevalent? I mean, did you see the movie so, growing up? I'm so glad you brought this up because it was actually one of my earliest memories. And I was thinking of like what happens in a child's life where they – kind of like go through some kind of sorting mechanism for themselves where do they fall in the social strata and i was born in denver and i don't remember this kid's name i don't remember like how we became friends or how we met 
But there was a kid who I was introduced to who was obsessed with Ghostbusters. He loved the movie. He had all the equipment. And I knew he was a cool kid because his dad rode a motorcycle. And that was something like that even before you really know like yeah. what's cool, what's not cool. It's like, a motorcycle. That's like, obviously yeah, cool. His dad rides a motorcycle. He likes Ghostbusters. Therefore, by the transitive property, Ghostbusters is something that cool kids like. Yeah, of course. And so he thought that I was cool like he was. And so he invited me over to watch Ghostbusters with him. And so we go to his house, excuse me, his apartment, and he puts the VHS in the VCR and it queues up. And I remember very vividly, like, I couldn't get past the very opening sequence where it takes place in the library, you know, the kind yeah. of anxiety building moment. I think I remember seeing some slime. But I also mm-hmm. remember, like, hiding in the corner of the apartment with, like, my head tucked oh, yeah, between yeah. my legs. Like, I was this is so like scared. a scary moment. Yeah, yeah, I was so terrified. And like I knew somebody like must have seen me cowering because they turned the movie off. And I think I remember kind of early on thinking like, oh, okay, Ghostbusters is a cool kids movie and I'm not a cool kid. And so it was like starting, yeah. <laughs> starting like from like, an early age. You kind of got this opinion, yeah. this thought in your head. That, yeah. uh, you know, maybe I'm not one of the cool kids. I, I don't know. And so yeah. like, is that what kind of set me down the path of trying to see what, okay, well, what is the cool kid alternative then that mm-hmm. I can lean into? And is that why I started leaning into it? I don't know. Yeah. No, I think... These moments can be formative and you may not recognize them until decades later. I mean, these things can have an impact on your psyche. And it's it's so silly to say that. But I mean, you're a kid watching a, a, I don't know what you'd call Ghostbusters. It's rated PG, but it definitely, there are problematic things with the movie. But ultimately, it seems like it was geared towards younger teenagers, maybe. But yeah, I think it's interesting that you can have an experience like that. And then it can have a subtle influence on at least just the social structure of like with this kid. And like, what did this kid think of you? Because you thought this kid was cool. Did he think that, you know, now oh, I'm got cool the, or something, you know, Oliver's wetness pants or this, or this <laughs> Ghostbusters movie? I don't know. I, I remember maybe being a little bit surprised after I was so terrified with Ghostbusters that he kind of still wanted to talk to me, but I didn't know what to talk to him about since mm-hmm. his favorite thing in the world was something that I couldn't possibly endure. Yeah. I don't remember how. And then, of course, we, we ended up moving. I was four when we moved from Denver. So I'm amazed that I remember any of that. Yeah, because I don't remember like much about my child. I remember like playing in the front lawn of the house where I was born into. I remember like reaching up above my head to set a juice glass on a countertop. <laughs> Just little snippets like that. I don't remember why I remember. I think the guy had beige carpet okay, or something like yeah. that. And like I remember like what the room looked like in the apartment that we were in, and maybe even like the Oshkosh Bagosh, like <laughs> yeah. you know the, the overall. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, that whatever in. they call them. Yeah. yeah it's very memorable, and I'm sure, I'm sure you've had experience as well, where something that terrifies you as a kid, you go back to later on, and then you're like, well, why was this yeah. so scary in the first place? I think it was only a few years after that that I watched Ghostbusters in its entirety, mm-hmm. and I don't think I had that kind of curiosity that an adult would have about something that happened in childhood. But I watched it again, and I remember this, the second impression of Ghostbusters I had was there's that scene where Bill Murray is like, quizzing people on what's on the other side of flashcards, and mm-hmm. it's like three wavy lines, and the guy says it correctly. So maybe he has ESP, but he still gets shocked. And I remember thinking now, as an older child, that Bill Murray is the villain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. Like, you see somebody lying, and yeah. it's, it's not good. Yeah. It's funny because at the time, it was like, oh, this guy's being cheeky or whatever. Yeah. And as an adult, you're like, wow, he's actually being kind of a douche. Yeah. Like, it's, it's really funny. And actually, Quentin Tarantino has a very articulated opinion about Bill Murray movies versus Chevy Chase movies. And he talks about it. I think it was, I don't know if it was on Joe Rogan or, or where he's talking about it, 
but basically how Bill Murray movies are similar to Chevy Chase movies. But the difference is that because they both start out as kind of opinionated jerks or assholes like they kind of but they're, they're being sly about it. They're kind of coy and they're kind of uh, glib. But at the end of it, in Bill Murray movies, he kind of gets the idea that I don't need to be this way anymore. Like there's mm-hmm. something that changes and like Chevy Chase movies, he's like consistent throughout. Like there's not like a uh, softening moment where he kind of learns from the error oh, of his sure. ways or whatever. Sure. And it's just kind of interesting because I never really thought about it but looking at movies like that there are certain lines certain things that you can kind of pick apart but as a kid you're just watching it and you're like oh there's you know ghost dancing around the screen like there's not much of a not much registering and a lot of it comes down to like child psychology which mm-hmm. once you understand what goes on in the mind of a child when they're watching something yeah they don't distinguish between reality and a movie yeah like for them there's no it's like it's all real and I think it's around age two or three that they basically developed where a child looks into a mirror and yeah. recognizes that the thing in the mirror is, is themselves. Them. Yeah. And for a while, kids don't recognize the fact that the thing in the mirror is themselves. They think it's a different entity altogether. And there's similar tendencies for films. And they've actually set up for advertising as well, where a kid can't distinguish between what's an advertisement and what's the television program or what have you. Oh, that makes sense. And that's one of the reasons why kids' advertising can be so impactful because they're watching a kid's TV show and they see, you know, this action figure or something like that. And it all all blends together. And I think a lot of it just boils down to a lack of parents teaching their kids media literacy. Mm -hmm. And this was not something that we really, nobody was talking about media literacy in the 80s or 90s, like at least not at the parent level. I think there were media theorists that would talk about it. But the idea is like you sit a child down and say, this is an advertisement. This is a way for people to try to sell you things. This is entertainment. (laughs) There's nobody sitting a child down and teaching those things. And so part of me wonders, are these studies flawed in the sense of maybe the kids didn't have the right environment? I don't Mm -hmm. know. Maybe it's just, you know, nature versus nurture. That's just pure nature. It's like the kid is just seeing these images. They can't distinguish between fact and fiction on television. But if you have somebody nurturing them in the right way and Mm -hmm. giving them this information and teaching them how to read media and understand this is a commercial, this is a television show, that distinction sometimes doesn't exist. So sure. when you're watching something like Ghostbusters and yeah. you're seeing that, you're like, these are real ghosts. Like, right, this, right. Is, this is scary. They can come out of the television, yeah, like whatever. No, that's so true. Even like between the waking world and, and nightmares or dreams. Yeah. I don't know if you ever had a dream. It seems like I must have had a dream as a kid since you mentioned mirrors where you crawl into a mirror and you're in the mirror mm-hmm. world instead yeah. of the real world or crawling into the television and then you're in the television world instead of the real world or or things like that. Yeah. Why not? What is it that exactly separates fantasy from reality? And I'm so, I'm so glad you brought up like this. Did we not criticize media enough in the eighties and nineties? Maybe just because we weren't exposed to it since we were children at the time. But I remember like my first exposure to media being criticized within the media was actually Calvin and Hobbes. Oh yeah. What Bill Watterson says about Calvin's relationship with the television was the first time I thought kind of like seeing this and then the commentary around it or like what Calvin is thinking as he's eating like massive amounts of sugar cereal as I was also doing. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, of like, well, wait, what should the relationship with television be? Mm -hmm. 
And I'm sure that's part of why in thinking about like when I was a kid, why would I want a sip of mom and dad's beer? Because yeah. I see them drinking it, yeah. but probably also because I saw how much fun people in beer commercials are having. Yeah. And I thought I want to have fun. Absolutely. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but that's how effective things can be. Oh, because yeah. Because a lot of this traces back to the history of advertising and kind of how advertising shifted in the 50s, to the 60s. I don't know if you've seen Mad Men at all, but Mad Men was all about that sort of time where once upon a time, you open up a magazine and it was an ad for Coca-Cola and you saw a picture of the Coke bottle, but it's just paragraph upon paragraph upon paragraph. It's just a wall of text. That was the advertisement (laughs) talking about... Oh, the crisp deliciousness of Coca-Cola or whatever. And that was like trying to convince you. And then over time, ads got less descriptive and more emotive. And it was all over targeting that happiness and our emotion. When you drink Coca-Cola, you're drinking happiness. So you take a kid who's been exposed to Super Mario 64 and you sit him down in front of Return to Zork and you say, have fun. Isn't this (laughs) going to be great? Oh, my gosh. What am I looking at? What is this? So how did that work out for you? Oh, man. Well, I went to school for screenwriting Mm -hmm. and I was at uh, New York University and one of my classmates who I was really good friends with at the time, I was obsessed with Zork. And I just couldn't, by this point, the horse was out of the barn in terms of graphics and what gaming could be. Yeah. And I just couldn't see about Zork what he had seen about mm-hmm. Zork. And I felt a little bit bad about it. And later, you know, I mean, recently I've been listening to some gaming podcasts talk about how games that were really influential in my childhood, like uh, Day of the Tentacle, which was a LucasArts game that mm-hmm. came out, the point to click, point and click adventure where you have to kind of do some out of the box thinking to solve like time travel related mysteries. And I remember being like so engrossed in the whole story of this. And then somebody who from our generation had been trying to play this game found it almost insufferable because <laughs> it's just dialogue that's recorded that the state of the art technology in the mid 90s doesn't yeah. hold up. And like oh, the yeah. kind of out of the box thinking that you have to do relies on jokes from like the vaudeville era, which were still kind of in parlance in the 90s that nobody's talked about since. Yeah, You definitely still see, uh, at least back then, you would see the remnants of older forms of entertainment because a lot of these people from the 20th century were still around. Like nowadays... You there. I would say there are still remnants of things like vaudeville, but it definitely yeah. seemed more prevalent back then. I think the shadow of the 20th century was looming large in the in the 90s yeah. because it was like the culmination of all of the things that have happened in the last hundred years. Yes, were kind of coming into focus a bit more in the 90s. And it's it's interesting to me how even if you don't know what vaudeville is, it seems to be coming back a little bit in ways. Like um, my wife made a great point about TikTok. We were happened to be watching some kind of commentary on a commentary and all these different YouTube things that you can come across. But this uh, Nikado Avocado <laughs> is a very polarizing figure. I've never heard of this Nikado Avocado. Yeah. And so he's a guy who used to be very svelte, was a vegan, and has since kind of gone in what you might consider a downward spiral because he'll like do these massive amounts of eating a bunch of junk food and then like portraying it as like, look at me, destroy myself. And it's all about the views. And Okay. And so maybe that's happening on one level, but on the other level, it's like, well, maybe this is a character that this person is playing because they know that that's what generates, you know, Mm, clicks. Yeah. It is sad to see somebody who used to be, you know, really svelte and talented with the violin just kind of destroy themselves in the kind of a grotesque representation of what they used to be. But I remember there was one thing that my wife and I were watching where he's got like two paper boxes of fried chicken and he's like stomping around. And then he's stomping around so hard that the chicken falls out of the paper box 
and he just cries for a split second and then st- keeps stomping around again. And we both laugh at this and we have to kind of pause. It's like, well, wait a second. Are we laughing at this guy? Is this good to be laughing? But like, what's what's happening here? Why is this funny? Yeah. And, you know, my wife's like, well, this is vaudeville. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're right. Yeah. It's that same, same kind of slapstick. It's like so true. And that there's something about the base of comedy where it's like you've got obviously there's there's different forms of comedy and there's actually yeah. a great um I'll have to look it up somewhere, but somebody did like a painting and they basically it's it's almost like a Renaissance painting where there's like lots of layers to it. Yeah. And they basically have all these characters and in the painting is all forms of comedy. Oh, so man. it's basically like you know, satire and puns and, you know, scatological humor and like all of these different <laughs> things. And they're all portrayed in there. Yeah. And in their opinion, it's like a kind of like a tower. So for them, it was like puns are one of the highest forms of art or comedy in this case. Yeah. But at the base level is like slapstick, slapstick oh, and like man. that sort of humor. If you trace the lineage of modern comedy, it's like slapstick humor was the original. A lot of those vaudeville stuff, a lot of the silent comedies, you look at you know, Buster Keaton and uh, Charlie Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin, the mm-hmm. biggest one, you know, it's yeah. like those sorts of comedies. And then, of course, like Laurel and Hardy and the Three yeah. Stooges, like yeah. that sort of stuff. It was all like, we're going to hit each other. We're going to fall down. That's funny and whatnot. Yep. Yep. And it really appeals to something in us and I think that for me I still do find some of that stuff funny but I do feel like my comedy has evolved a bit Mm -hmm. where I do feel like there is a point where that stuff is I don't know. I, I don't want to say it's beneath me, but it definitely like I like humor that acts on multiple levels, not just the slapsticky level. But there will always be fail videos that I will die laughing at. <laughs> and it's just like there's yeah. something about it that like yeah. no matter how old you get or like how philosophical you get about comedy, it's yeah. like there's something about somebody falling down a flight of stairs oh, totally. that will never not be funny. And R- I R- don't know. Yeah. R.I.P. Bob Saget. Yeah. It was a big part of my childhood was once a week. It was like an event when you knew that America's Funniest Home Videos would be on. You hear the music and it was like, oh, my God, you know, dad's bringing the bowl of popcorn. Mom's got a glass of Coke. Let's go. Dude, you know, this so, is going to be a good hour. I had the same experience. Yeah. It's so funny oh. because, yeah, it was a big deal Sunday nights. Yep. You get yep. the popcorn ready oh, and yeah. you'd hear the opening bars, dude, dude, you know, dude, America, dude, this dude, is you. Dude. It's like yeah. kind of a big deal. And thinking about what that show did for comedy in general, but like also for a whole generation of people. This was before the internet, before YouTube, before, you know, failed compilations and all those things. It was like a very specific thing where you would get people's home videos. That was something that you didn't get to see a lot of times. It was like, you think about it. I don't know if you're familiar, like media theory and gatekeepers and whatnot. It's like, if I'm a person who's like, say it's 1975 and I want to make something, I want to get my art out to people. It's like, you have to go through gatekeepers of some Mm -hmm. kind, whether it be the TV stations, the movie studios, the record labels, like whatever. There's got to be a gatekeeper that says, we approve of your art. We're going to allow other people to see it or whatever. Right. And obviously the internet has torn down all those walls. Anybody right. can post anything. Right. But America's Funniest on Videos was one of the first instances of the wall coming down a little bit where anybody could shoot something and it could end up on national TV. Right. And there was a real appeal to that, that these were videos from regular everyday people mm-hmm. who just so happened to have a video camera 
And I think it's interesting because you definitely got a glimpse into like, I mean, not to get too philosophical, but like the true America. Yeah. You look in the media about like who is living in America, what are, what are American values, all those yeah. sorts of things. But when you see a show like this, I think it's a great package almost of like all of that coming in. What, what does the American family look like? What, so, what do pets look like? All so, of that. So great. And you talk about, okay, so the internet changed things because you don't have gatekeepers anymore. And so then who becomes the gatekeeper? Well, people with their likes or their dislikes. Mm-hmm. And even then, even in the 90s, I remember, I think a critical element of the show was that the audience got to vote on these yeah. little like ancient remote controls yeah, for what video they thought that. should win. Yeah. And I think that that was like, that was a critical part of the show. Cause if it was the producers choosing, okay, well, this is the funniest video that we think maybe they knew on some level, okay, people are going to tune out mm-hmm. if we get to choose what is the funniest video that receives $10,000. So yeah. we got to have, we got to leave it up to the audience. And I remember also the intro of that show, I think was important because the Simpsons had their couch gag. Mm-hmm. And then America's Funniest Home Videos had like a tiny little set where something cute or funny would happen yeah. as you were like kind of panning into the main stage. Yeah, it was, it was cause basically like for those of you who haven't seen it, the audience is obviously seated in front of the stage. But behind the audience, mm-hmm. there was some sort of a, a set of some kind. And it would it would change, of course. Yeah. But like there were times where it was like a fake living room where there'd be a family watching America's yep. Funniest on Videos and the camera would pan past that across the audience yes. onto the stage. Yeah. yeah. There would always be something. And it's a real shame because I, as a person who tries to hunt down media, the early seasons of uh, America's Funniest on Videos are hard to find. Oh, there sure. are some YouTube rips, fortunately, oh, yeah. of these full episodes, but it's not like because ABC – so this is where it gets into the legality of it. So ABC obviously produced America's Funny Some Videos. But in order to get the rights to the videotapes, they the people would send it in. And then, of course, from a copyright standpoint, whoever shot the video owns the copyright. Mm. So when you send in a videotape to America's Funny Some Videos, you have to relinquish your copyrights. But then if you want to then have America's Funniest Home Videos get released in home media format, whether it be on VHS or DVD or Blu-ray or whatever, it will need to have another layer of approval. So this is one of the things that is really tricky about American copyright law is that you get an initial approval to air the thing, and then there needs to be further approval to sell the thing. Oh, wow. And so this is actually one of the things that's held up shows like Tosh.0. Sure. Very similar thing where it's a web video format and they have to get the rights to air the web videos and then they have to get the rights to then sell it in a Blu-ray package or a DVD wow. package. So there's from a right standpoint, it's a ridiculously difficult process to get these shows out to people, um, which is why one of the reasons why it can be so hard to find old episodes of the show at least in a legal way. But I think it's important to be able to look back because there's so many great things about the show that I think were really interesting. And, you know, talking about a pre-YouTube era, there, by the way, there's a podcast that they just did a couple of years ago about America's Funniest Home Videos by the people who made the show. Oh my God. It's really interesting. There was a, I, there's an executive producer. I forget his name. I'm going to remember it later. Basically, he, Jerry Van Patten, I want to say is his name, but that might be wrong. But anyways, he's the executive producer, basically got the idea for the show and put it all together, got Bob Saget as the host and everything. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about what made the show so unique and why it still exists in the YouTube era, because obviously the show is still on, which is Mm -hmm. crazy. Mm -hmm. And he talked about the fact that it all boiled down to curation. 
And it was really interesting because he basically was like, you could, yeah, you could see some of these videos on YouTube, but you know what it would take to find some of these videos on YouTube? Oh. In the old days of YouTube, you could turn on YouTube and you could see random videos from random people. That's yeah. the old school YouTube. Yeah. Once Google bought it, it's now a creator driven platform. It's all about the channels and subscriptions mm-hmm. and big blown out videos that are two hours long. I mean, some of these, <laughs> some of these YouTube videos are crazy long are. and it's like, where are the YouTube videos that are 30 seconds that are just like a funny thing where somebody's falling down or getting hit in the nuts? Okay. Like those are the videos that are harder to find. I still watch those videos through compilations. Yes, same. So there are people same. that will do the heavy lifting of yeah. scrubbing through YouTube, finding these fails, and putting them together in a packaged compilation. Okay. Yeah. But and there was- that's one of the things that America's Funniest Home Videos did before we really had that. So somebody was doing the heavy lifting of looking through all those VHS tapes and they talked about mm-hmm. how many VHS tapes they would get that were just crap because people just send oh, in I a bunch it. of stuff. I so, believe that 100%. Yeah. Trying to sort through all that is crazy. And you're right. I'm so glad you brought this up because the curators don't get enough credit. It's it's God's work to save people all the time and sorting through all the mm-hmm. the frogs to, yeah. to find something that's really, really good and, mm-hmm. and worth watching. And it's interesting. Uh, to me, it seems like YouTube ought to be doing more to embrace curators and figure out a way okay, this isn't exactly your content, but you're still contributing something valuable that's driving engagement. And so from what I've seen, YouTube tries to shut down the curation platforms with the exception of, I guess, like Fail Army has a strong Mm -hmm. presence there. But there was one that we used to watch Reddit Before Bed, which was a Mm -hmm. great compilation of short, shorter Reddit clips. But that has disappeared. And it Mm -hmm. makes me feel like, okay, YouTube probably shut this down because who has the rights to this stuff? Yeah. Well, and that's the other complicated thing is that, to be fair, a lot of these people who are putting together these compilations, they're not getting the rights. They're right. just ripping the YouTube videos, putting them together. And a part of it's like, yeah, that sucks because you want the original creators to get credit for their work. Yeah. But at the same time, it's interesting because we see these fail videos. I'm sure you've seen hundreds, if not thousands of fail videos in your life. Mm-hmm. And it's like for every one of these fail videos, we watch it and it's, oh, it's a fail video. It's somebody, you know, falling, getting hurt or whatever. Yeah. But then to the person whose video that is, it's like, that this, sucks. This ruined their day, yeah, right? It's like totally. this legitimately was like a moment in time that like really caused problems. And ultimately these videos, I don't expect that people think that they're going to make a million dollars from a fail video or something right, like right. that. So I don't think that there's really much of a financial loss from somebody's content getting ripped off or whatever. But I do think it's it's mainly kind of the credit. And then also there's a, a Instagram page called Hall of Meat. And it is literally just like skateboard wipeout videos oh, and whatnot. And there oh, are some man. of them pretty brutal. But the idea is that some of these people will submit their fails and then they'll get draws to their actual page yeah. where they actually skate professionally sure. and they can do really cool tricks, but they get people drawn in with the fails yeah. and they stick around for the cool skate tricks or something. Yeah, so you, get, you get people in the door one way and if, if you find a way to link it, then maybe you can like show some that this person is more than just somebody who got hit and then that's with the football. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, that's it's an interesting... It's a great moral question that we haven't answered as a society, obviously, but maybe people don't spend enough time even asking. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's part of the problem. I, I don't know. I mean, because I think about it like if there was a way to reward the curators for what they do to YouTube videos. Yeah, you're right. There's still the moral element of the people who are being exploited 
how do you try to compensate them in a way that's fair for for what's happening to something that they may not have even consented to Mm -hmm. uh, in the first place. And I'm trying to put myself in those shoes. Like, I'm so glad that my worst day, month, whatever, hasn't been videotaped and like broadcast to the entire world. Because that's happened. Without my permission. Oh, absolutely. So many people. Absolutely. And if there was a way, like, A, would people be curious enough if there was a clickable link within that somewhere to be like, hey, by the way, you know, this person wrote like a term paper that they're pretty proud of. Do you want to read it? Yeah. And like, yeah. oh, sure. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Why not? Like, what, where, how deep does this rabbit hole go? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's I think that would be an interesting experiment. If you could figure out a way like launching a weather balloon or something to launch like some unknown person into the spotlight like this and then as like a social experiment, have them also have something like really intellectual and of value to mm-hmm. a global conversation that see how many people engage with that as a result of learning about this dumb thing that they yeah. do. I don't know. I mean, it's it's an interesting idea for sure. And I think a lot of it speaks to the fact that we tend to seek out, uh, at least for fail videos, like we go to a fail video because we want to watch somebody fail or we yeah. want to we want to get that belly laugh or whatever. Yeah. But then we may not actively be looking for, oh, this guy is actually a really brilliant physicist. Like he's like, he's, yeah. this was a low moment where he dropped and spilled his beer or something yeah, like that. Right, it's like, yeah. But or, yeah, I don't know. Would we, would we want to, would you go to a fail video to seek out? Other of course not. It's of course not. Well, and, and, like maybe that's even too strong. Like obviously most of the world isn't great physicists, but I, mm-hmm. like people have done something that they're proud of and yeah. maybe they want that to be the thing that they're remembered for. And maybe the only reason that you would even watch them is by watching the stupid thing first. And then maybe they would get to choose what is the thing that they're proud of. And the reason I'm making this argument is not because I think this is something that should be done by any stretch of the imagination. I think that <laughs> consent is, is huge. Yeah. But because I think that there's an argument made that I inherently don't agree with. And I, it's taken me until this conversation to articulate what that argument even is, which I think there's an argument that human beings are inherently stupid. And one of the points of evidence for that is look how much stupid video stuff that they engage with in dramatic contrast with some of the intellectual stuff on YouTube that they could be engaging with and won't because they'd rather watch somebody get hit in the nuts with a football than have a philosophical debate about whether or not Christianity is still relevant or something like that. Mm -hmm. But first of all, I don't know what those engagement metrics are. I don't know how to look up what those engagement metrics are. But I think that there is still something inherently curious about the human mind and redeemable in the way that we're not as dumb as people make us out to be. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, it's just as incorrect to sell the story that we just want to sit around drinking beer and watch people get hit in the nuts with a football. Yeah. I think we obviously need more than that. But I think herein lies the duality of man. Yeah. I think that there, there's, <laughs> there is a part of us that wants yeah, we to want that, sit yeah. around the fire and to have philosophical discussions. Yeah. And then there's a part of us that will laugh at somebody getting hit with a football. Like there's definitely two parts of, of our being, I guess, of, of what drives us as humans. You definitely see both sides of the coin on the internet. You see, I mean, the internet is an amazing tool that can be used for all sorts of different things. And on one hand, you've got the freedom of information that we've never had as a human society. Like we've never been able no. to access as much information so readily and so quickly as we can with the internet. And that has unlocked so many doors to be able to, you know, scholarly articles, information about health mm-hmm. and all of these sorts of important things. And yet we also 
have so much negative stuff yeah. that's happening on the internet as well. And just as much misinformation. Misinformation, misinformation. yeah. Exactly. And, and like speech, bullying, all right. of those sorts of negative aspects can come out through the internet as well. So how did you and I learn the critical thinking skills that help us determine within a few paragraphs of, oh, this article is real versus this article is fake, Yeah. right? How did we learn those skills? I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the process of getting those. You know, my mom was a debate coach. She... I, I would say she made me do debate. It was something that I was interested in. Yeah. But she, I, she as the coach, really, really wanted to hammer home the importance of this skill, which is a skill. Yeah. And one of the things, to the great credit of the National Forensics League, which I think is something that if I was president, I would say that this would be a required course prior to graduation. Because mm-hmm. what's great about high school debate is that you have to learn both sides of the issue well enough to debate both sides of the issue. Yeah. Which means that, you know, if you had to debate on abortion or uh, what is it, capital punishment or affirmative action, you would have to know the pros as well as the cons because you don't know until the coin toss which side you're going to be arguing. So you have to argue both sides equally well. Yeah. It's and, so funny you had that, by the way, because I had the exact same experience in oh, high school debate okay. where I would have to argue both sides. I feel like that definitely helps me get perspective yeah. on not only how to read things, but also how to argue things, how to empathize with people whose viewpoints are different than mine. The fact that your mom was a debate coach probably put the seeds in you early to kind of understand how to read nuance and and how to articulate your arguments. So yes, at its best, it teaches you how to have empathy, but at its worst, it also teaches you how to win by figuring out what are the exploits within this. Because who are, well, who are the coaches, especially in kind of a rural high school in Wyoming, like I went to. Mm -hmm. The coaches are whoever you can find, right? Whoever's free on a Saturday or a weekday evening. And you could get anybody. I mean, I I remember there was one debate that I lost because it was a a boyfriend-girlfriend who were like two out of the three coaches. And the boyfriend had originally voted for my two-person team until he saw that his girlfriend had voted against us and then literally crossed it all out and like wrote <laughs> oh, that the other gosh. team was going to win. Yeah. So wow. this, these are the coaches you get. But you also learn because high schoolers are clever, right? Mm-hmm. Like how to exploit this a little bit. And I remember there was one debate that I won, not because my arguments were better, but because I had been a little bit showier with like, well, I have this study and this study and this study. And I just kept throwing pieces of paper on the ground. And I was like, <laughs> we got five studies here that show like these certain points about this certain issue. And it, like if you did some digging, were these the best arguments to make? Yeah. No. But it was like the showmanship of it yeah. that really kind of convinced the judge of like, oh, OK, yeah. I mean, yeah. this person's done their homework. They know what they're talking about. Yeah. Which, I mean, is not fair. But it's also like when you're the person who uses that exploit, then you really see it. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, I know I've done that before. Mm-hmm. Like when you're watching these uh, clickbait headlines and you read the first two paragraphs of it, you're like, somebody crafted this mm-hmm. to make me feel a certain way. And there's a book that I uh, just finished, uh, Trust Me Online, Ryan Holiday. Have you heard of it? Oh, him? yeah. I, I, the the uh, Stoicism Ego, podcast? So I've, I've read his book, Ego is the Enemy. Oh, okay. But I, I haven't, okay. uh, haven't gotten this new one yet. Yeah. So yeah, what a transformation this guy's been through. Because mm-hmm. in the same way that I was an evil high school debater, mm-hmm. you know, using these little tricks to kind of wiggle my way to a win that maybe I didn't deserve morally or whatever. This guy was working in the PR industry using the similar tricks or really honing those skills of what those Mm -hmm. tricks are. Something that he says in the book that I really admire is it's like everybody feeds the bear thinking that the bear is not eventually going to want to eat them as Mm -hmm. well. Of course it does because it's a bear. And so you feed this beast thinking like, oh, I'm going to become friends with this thing. I know this thing. Yeah. I can use this thing to my advantage. And of course, it eventually 
That's came so after him as well. Yeah, he was doing some PR work for American Apparel, trying to represent a guy who I think he really had his work cut out for him, based uh, on this Quibi it, documentary that I saw about. Okay, the was it uh, Don Cheney? I think so. What I was think, his name? What was his name? Was uh, it Don? I want to say the American Apparel CEO. Yeah, yeah. he was the he was the dirtbag that was like. Right. Dov Charney. Dov Charney. That's, his Dov yeah, that's, Charney. that's, that's yeah. 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 So he was representing Dov. And as he's doing so, it's like, man, this is this is not easy. But you see people coming at him with ways that are also not very fair mm-hmm. or like giving him like a two second lead time to respond to an article and then publishing it and also saying that he did not or declined to comment or whatever. Yeah. When he would have commented, if he'd given him more than two and, seconds. Yeah, of lead exactly. Before publishing. Had he had time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's just, yeah. It's interesting that you could be in the belly of the beast and kind mm-hmm. of call it for what it is. Because I think that there's a lot of people who start out very well-intentioned, who want to do the best job that they possibly can. Then there are certain people that kind of, once they get into it, they start to see how the system is working. And they realize that this is broken and I need to call attention to it. Yeah, You know, you look at guys like Edward Snowden and like oh, other people man. like where you're on the inside and you're like, I kind of feel like I have an obligation to peel the curtain back a little yeah. bit. And to kind of show people for what the system is really doing. (laughs) And you're coming back to this idea of like media literacy. When you said (laughs) when you're reading an article and you realize that within the first couple of sentences or whatever, that this is just not great or it's misleading or Mm -hmm. something like that. Where do you go to get those skills? Mm -hmm. And you can teach those skills insofar as that you can help people identify. You can show somebody something and you can say, here's why this isn't adding up or whatever. Yeah. But ultimately, people are going to have to use their own minds and think for themselves. They're going to have to do this on their own and you can only guide people so far. So if you are going to a website that may not have legitimate downloads on it and you mm-hmm. want to download something, you're going to see a bunch of pop-up advertisements that say, download, 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 download. But you know only one of them is the real download button that will actually download your content. Right. But all of these advertisements are floating around there making you think that they're the real download button. (laughs) And what is it about us that can tell the real button from the fake button? Yeah. I feel like that's something that only has come up in the last 10 to 20 years is this ability to have those downloads. So I don't know where you go to teach that. That's something that's almost inherent through trial and error because we've had this experience. We know what the right button is, but I I don't know how you implore that to somebody who's older, 50 to 60 year old age. Like how do you teach somebody that? Well, you can't teach somebody who's not willing to learn. That's first and foremost. So it's like already, that's your 99% filter right there. Who are the people who actually want to know? Mm-hmm. And then, okay, among those few that remain after answering that question, honestly, how do you walk them through the forest, so to speak, to teach them which mushrooms are toxic and which ones yeah. can help you survive, you know, a rough famine? Mm-hmm. We had to learn at some point what mushrooms were toxic versus what, which were edible. And in losing that knowledge from some of our indigenous roots, somebody else asked that question on a different podcast I was listening to. And of course, like passed down from person to person. If you had a curator Mm -hmm. who could walk you through the forest to say like, well, this is good and this is bad, then that person knows and then they can share it with another person. And then you can kind of learn the nuances between, yeah, I know this looks edible, but -hmm. it's actually not because of this particular detail that you might not notice otherwise. And so I think that I agree with sense of urgency, because if it's a skill, then it's a skill that can be lost. And so how do we preserve something that we we don't know how we got in the first place? It is an alarming question, because it means that the mechanism that was there to teach us is not something that we know well enough to reconstruct if we had to, and we might have to. Mm-hmm. 
So I share the alarm with people who are worried about how media illiterate people can become. I think it's a fair argument to say that we ought to be doing more in the direction of teaching people media literacy. Mm -hmm. I think it's definitely an area that is coming to focus. I feel like more people are talking about it than they have in recent years. But at the same time, it still is woefully underdeveloped in many school systems. Mm -hmm. I, I went to a private high school, so I got a class senior year, I forget the exact title, but it was basically about the construction of the media and media theory. And this was such an eye-opening class as a senior in high school. And I felt like it would have been beneficial my freshman year. It definitely would have been something that could have prepared me for understanding a bit about culture. It was actually called communication and culture. Uh, mm -hmm. That's what the official title was. But mm -hmm. the idea is that there's a lot about how things are communicated to us that if you don't have on the right glasses, you're not going to be able to see the true message. I mean, not to be too critical of media, but, you know, if you've seen They Live, that idea <laughs> of, you know, there it is. There's a hidden message, yeah, right? There's that's what the you text do. in the subtext. Of course, right? that's it. That's all you got to do. You got to you got to make sure that they live is in the Criterion Collection. Yeah, and you course. put it as like required reading for high school. Then you're yeah. good. Yeah. That's the mechanism. There I think it it's it's important, but I think yeah. the idea is that it's like there are so many things that are vying for our attention, and all of them want us to believe that they are the true, legitimate source of information. Mm -hmm. You know, every news source wants you to think that they're the authority, that they're the ones who hold the truth and the other ones may be lying from time to time or whatever. But ultimately, in most cases, there's nothing that's quite black and white. It's all kind of shades of gray. And I think that's where it becomes so difficult, especially when you look at politicians and kind of the way the news media works. It's like if there was a politician that just lied all the time, no one would believe them. So a true, I mean, there are yeah. Yeah, definitely politicians that lie a lot, uh -huh. but a lot of the most effective politicians are the ones that mix truth with lies. Oh, God. And that's what makes it so sinister. That's it. Because they will say something. It's like, oh, that's objectively true. Yeah. I know that's true. And then the very next sentence is something that's objectively false. Fantastic. And so when you get this sort of rhetoric that's going out into, it's like that's where it becomes so difficult to align with. Even some of these modern philosophers, they'll say something that's like spot on. It's like, I 100% agree with that. And then they'll say something that's totally crazy. I'm like, wait a minute. Right. I don't. Where do you get that? So yeah. it's it's so hard sometimes because there are certain people that become vilified in the media because of a certain thing that they have said or believed. Mm -hmm. And so anytime that that person's name is evoked, immediately there's a negative visceral reaction. And it's like, wait a minute. This guy actually said some really legitimate, thought-provoking things. Mm -hmm. And then they also say some things that are awful. And I think that as humans, we need to be able to parse that. We need to be able to pick it apart and understand there are some things that we say that can be beneficial. And there are other things that ultimately are just tearing us apart and they're mm -hmm. causing division. And I think it's important for us to be able to read between the lines a little bit and maybe come to a better understanding about how to dissect and interpret the media that's around us. Yeah, but I also think that a great, I, I believe that the greater number of why these stories spread so much is because they make people angry on a certain level. Yeah. And I don't think that there's as many people who believe in this story and share it blindly as there are, you know, I think more people who see these question them, maybe not to the fullest extent, because who has that kind of time? Mm -hmm. And that, that's where I think, coming back to our earlier point about the importance of curators, it's like, if we can figure out, A, how did we become critical thinkers? 
Not that you and I are the best critical thinkers on the planet, <laughs> but clearly this is a skill that helps us survive in this world and helps us figure out what's worth paying attention to and what's not. And I think that what the ar <laughs> the argument against racism in favor of critical thinking is that anybody's capable of it, mm -hmm. right? And so if you can figure out how to educate critical thinking in a way that also satisfies the requirements of a systemically racist society, I think the internet offers that solution. So I, I'm optimistic about this. I think that we're really close Mm. is that we can figure out how to get critical thinking courses uploaded in such an engaging way that it doesn't matter what community you're born into. If you have internet access and a safe place to study for an hour a day, then you can learn some of the skills that you'll need. But again, any argument that I might make in favor of this could easily be painted as a way of like, well, of course he thinks that because he grew up in a privileged uh, society as a mm -hmm. white male. And so, of course, he's going to want to export whatever his culture is to yeah. whatever anybody else is. And so, I don't know. I can't. I can only make the argument that one person might make given the experiences that I've had. And I would invite people to question it and, and I don't know, just try it out. I, I feel like it got uh, derailed a little bit because I, I think we're getting right to the cutting edge of what I think is so concerning about so many of the news stories that we've heard in the last three years, especially because I don't know how to make the case for like, I know what a good work environment is. I know what a good what it feels like to be a good part of society. And I've, I've lived in places where people contribute even in small ways towards the improvement of their communities. And I say this cross politically, cross generationally. I've had a great fortune in my life to experience in a lot of different cultures, like some elements that really promote the sustainability of a society and some that don't. I've been on the streets of Japan, for example. It's very clean. It's very quiet. And there's a cost to that as well. I've been on the streets of Nepal where the roads are not paved and the infrastructure is crumbling and the government is very corrupt. But there's still something in the communities there that promote the stability of the, the family unit and like what is the culture there that allows people to grow and thrive in those areas. And so I think that there is there is something there is a way out. I'm not so nihilistic that I think that we're forever doomed to live in a permanently racist community that's always mm -hmm. going to exploit somebody no matter what. I'm willing to make that argument Yeah, that there is a way out. And it doesn't have to be my way, but I think that there, optimistically speaking, there's there's something that we can do about this that we'll eventually find because we have the technology. And if enough people are having the right conversation, then it's, it's going to be fine. See, I'm optimistic too. I would love for things to get better with technology. I think that technology has the ability for us to, I don't want to say supersede race because I think we don't want to live in a raceless society. We want to celebrate what makes us unique. Hmm. However, we also want to be united. I, I probably will edit this out, but uh, <laughs> Norm MacDonald had a great bit about yeah. somebody who claimed to be proud of being Asian. Yeah. And he was joking about it. He's like, what makes you proud to be Asian? You might as well be proud to be wearing a green sweatshirt. <laughs> and the idea is that we get so hung up with our ego, the yeah. false self. And it's yeah. like, I'm proud to be this. I'm proud to be that. It's like, you should be proud to be human. You should be proud to be alive. You should be proud to be breathing and to celebrate this thing that we call life. I think that we get so hung up on the egotistical self and just like the idea that I am a man, I am this age, yeah. I am this race, yeah. I have this background. It's like, great, that helps form who you are, but that doesn't define you. You shouldn't let no. that define you. A conversation I wish more people were having 
is how hungry and desperate Americans are for a unifying culture. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a void in that. So it's like you get the whole St. Patrick's Day, kiss me, I'm Irish, or, you know, like Mm -hmm. that Cinco de Mayo. Why is that being celebrated in South Dakota? Beats me, but it's a deal. I mean, it's like, you know, people talk about it, people make plans for it. And so it's like, we need that ritual. We need that kind of edifying. There's something that maybe we've lost. It's like parts of the melting pot have melted. Mm -hmm. Other parts haven't. And there's not enough of a conversation around which parts have melted. Is it good that they have? Mm -hmm. And which parts haven't? And is it good that they haven't? And so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, people much more intelligent than me can make arguments about what's happening here. But I think people are afraid to and reasonably because it has become such a toxic third rail issue. Who would, in their right mind, go onto Twitter and make the argument that you and I have just tried to casually lay out? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know anybody who's willing to do that. The problem is that while Twitter is a great way to disseminate information quickly, it's not a great tool for having nuanced discussion. Right. 140 characters is not nearly enough space for you to be able to talk about these critical issues that are happening in today's society, yet we attempt to. And what happens? We oversimplify things. We leave out certain critical aspects about how things operate. Granted, you do have people who will write long threads about this and that. But ultimately, I think a lot of this sort of stuff could benefit from a long form discussion. Mm -hmm. And I think I really do mean discussion in that it is a two way street. I think we can't just have it be I'm talking at you. There needs to be an ability for us to be able to ask questions and to be able to pick things apart, to deconstruct and to reconstruct. And that can only happen when there's mutual respect and understanding, which you don't often find Mm -hmm. on the Internet. And then also the ability for you to articulate your opinion without stepping on people's toes and being forceful about it. Right. Who would willingly take on the task of doing this, like especially in the last two years during quarantine and everything? Mm -hmm. Just stay home. Yeah. Watch somebody else talk about it on YouTube and then hit that like button if you agree. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's yeah, like that's it's a true. lot easier way to be a part of the debate that's raging yeah. around us. Absolutely. And a lot of this boils down to the understanding of media theory in the sense of there is an event that took place. This thing happens in reality, our physical space. And then you have somebody recording it. And this basically allows for this concept called mediation. And mediation, again, is a layer removed from reality. And mediation, then, a great example is that you have these argument videos on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. People are, you know, Karens in the wild and stuff like that. You have an incident that happens at a grocery store or wherever, mm-hmm. and people start taking out their phones and recording it. Yep. It's like the thing that happened in the grocery store, if you were standing by you might understand the nuance of right. who started what or yep. what have you. Yeah. But the moment somebody takes out a phone and starts recording, we immediately lose the context totally. for what happened at the beginning. And we're seeing a very narrow perspective from one person's viewpoint. Yes. And you would, you would hope that video is very objective yeah. and that it allows you, the viewer, to see an incident, how it took place. So have you seen that teacher freak out about pomegranates? I've not. Oh, my God. This is, so there's this a, a teacher. Gr- it's a great example of exactly this point, right? Because I was introduced to the video of this teacher shouting at her class, no pomegranates, no, mm. no, 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 no pomegranates. Yeah. 
And, you know, I was laughing at this. And I was like, man, this lady really hates pomegranates. Yeah. And I was totally taken in by that. And of course, once you learn the greater context for the story, it's like, this is, a, I think she's a psychology teacher. And she was like, using the no pomegranates thing as a greater lesson for like, what are the rules and how are rules communicated? And what are the implications of that communication style being used? Yeah. So the teacher was very aware of what she was doing. And all we saw was the video of this like freak out moment. And that's what spreads. Yeah. When you totally lose the greater meaning of this question of somebody who's very sane, mm. utilizing this as a tactic to teach their students a greater critical thinking lesson. Yeah. And that's why I think context is so important and also discussion, mm -hmm. right? Because if you just see this video online, you're going to form an opinion about, wow, this teacher's crazy about her pomegranates yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But ultimately, if you were in the classroom or you heard what they had to say prior to the video, you'd kind of understand that. But once the video goes up online, it kind of takes on a life of its own in the <laughs> sense of like, you're going to yeah. have people that are like, this teacher's crazy. What's going on with our education system yeah. oh, or whatever. Totally. And because it then fuels a certain narrative that yeah. they already had, they had this viewpoint yeah. and this video supports that viewpoint. And so I'm going to run with it yeah. and they get shared ad nauseum online. And then you get and the pomegranate lobby and there's no getting rid of yeah, that. I mean, right. Yeah. <laughs> Big pomegranate. We got to worry about that. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's important, but yeah, yeah, you definitely see stuff like that. And it's, it's kind of a problem because we need to be able, to understand things a little bit more yeah. for sure yeah um i'm gonna get some more water i don't Let's know do, do you need some i do okay Thank great you. yeah when do we start this? recording by the way <laughs> oh yeah no, yeah gosh i've been recording so i didn't oh. realize i just you know i'm just like let the conversation flow naturally yeah and see where it goes and like i said we can edit anything out no that no we i don't want I, to but frankly i'm good with all of this i, I used to have a, a radio show when i was working in rapid city Okay, and, I want to know about this radio show because I came from radio too. Oh, really? So yeah, oh, man. please so, tell me about this. Okay, yeah. So it was um, what was the what was the call sign? But it was some. Uh, it was the School of Mines and Technology in Rapid City, South Dakota. Okay. And I talked to the original guy who kind of like the School of Mines had their own broadcasting tower in the '90s, and then this great guy with a huge heart restarted it all. And he only worked on it for about a year before he handed the reins to somebody who I think had a crazy agenda who ended up, I don't know, destroying it. But Ugh. for that brief year, I introduced myself to the guy, explained like, hey, you know, I'm a fire safety public official now, and I would love to have a radio hour once a week. And he was totally on board. He's like, this wow. is great. And so I would go, I would play a little bit of the music that I had curated that I never got to hear mm -hmm. on mainstream radio, and then talk interstitially just with some fire tips or some news about what the fire department yeah. was up to for that week. And the whole time I'm thinking, I can't believe I get paid for this. This That's is so amazing. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And I had a battalion chief who felt the same way. I was like, I borrowed the fire department vehicle to drive over to the school of mines. He's like, what are you doing? I said, I got my radio show. By the way, I think my mom only listened to it once. <laughs> you know, I was like, my one listener was <laughs> mom. So nice, she tuned yeah. in for one episode. Yeah. But yeah, even the battalion chief was like, I can't believe you get paid to do this. And That's like, yeah, I, don't, I don't either. So how long did it last? Uh, it was a good year. It was, yeah. called, it was called The Fire Flower. Oh, man, it's killing me that I can't think of the call sign. But I tried to get bumper stickers, I think. And what? It, it kind of fell apart. But, well, so I had the radio show for a while. It was it was a good thing. I was trying to think of, like, well, how could we tie in what we started talking about, Ghostbusters, to <laughs> yeah. how we were talking about racism. And I think it's all unified in the logo of, like, no white people. <laughs> So I was going to say, like, part of what really stood out to me about the Ghostbusters VHS was it had a cool logo and a cool box. Mm -hmm. It was very sleek black with just yeah. that simple, very yeah. thoughtful, no ghost logo. Yeah. 
And I, I think that even as a kid, it's like the design of it uh, is something that really jumps out at you. Yeah, it definitely has an iconography that like is very it's a simple yet effective poster. And I think there are examples of good graphic design that have stuck around. And I think that's one of those examples because it's that symbol kind of became ubiquitous. It was on lunchboxes, t-shirts, socks. I mean, you can get anything with the Ghostbusters stuff on it. And I think it's kind of funny because coming full circle, talking about I, I haven't seen it yet, so I don't. I haven't seen the two new ones. I don't know if you have you seen. Oh, uh, boy, have I? No. Okay, I yeah. haven't. Because I, I have not. Because the thing is, that there's so many movies to watch. I haven't had time to watch all sure. of them, obviously. But the uh, the two new ones. The first one was the all female led by uh, Paul Feig. That's right. Who uh, I remember, Paul. I was blown away because one of my favorite movies growing up was Heavyweights about the Fat Camp. Paul Feig is in it as one of I grew up loving. This, I've this never character. heard of this movie in my entire life. You've never heard of Heavyweights? I'm kidding. I know every single line <laughs> of that movie. <laughs> yeah, it was so it's, good. Yeah, it's it's like, ridiculous. To me, as a roly-poly middle schooler, that was like a movie that represented me. The snacks mm. hidden in the bedpost was something I thought oh was my absolutely gosh, Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. So great. Yeah. I'm trying to think of how we can get, I think if we go, because this is one of my favorite things, playing the uh, Six Degrees of Separation. Oh, yeah. Very so good. we'll go from Bill, Bill Murray, Murray yep. in, in Ghost ghostbusters because we're trying to get to heavyweights yeah and we can go from bill murray and ghostbusters to trying to think of either like a ben stiller or judd apatow there's a lot of uh bill murray yeah i've never heard of yeah no that's the thing is that i try to curate all of the even the obscure ones there i think we can do it in just a couple of clicks because i'm pretty sure i'm just trying to ben stiller was in the royal tenenbaums oh yeah of course yes i should know that uh so the royal tenenbaums of course we can do this one and then go over here. Beautiful. And there it is. Yeah, there's there. the six degrees. You're right. There we go. Okay, great. Love it. So, so yeah. Good. So this was a movie that I don't know if you ever had. Did you ever have Latchkey as a kid? Or so the concept there was a, of Latchkey? So there was a, interesting. So we moved when I was in sixth grade. I had a chance to reinvent myself from the roly-poly middle schooler to we moved into this new neighborhood in Wyoming. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to reinvent myself. I'm tired of being the fat kid. Yeah. And so I got this bike route because I was like – I want to have a job. I want to have some money. So I got this bike route without knowing how to ride a bike. And at the time, my mom had a BMW. (laughs) So God bless my mom. You know, my very first day of delivering papers door to door, we got this brand new construction, like all these construction workers putting together this new neighborhood that we had just moved into. And then they see this BMW with this fat kid getting out of the front oh, door no. to deli- hand deliver each paper That's to so Steve door by door and they about pissed themselves they were laughing so hard on yeah. this room they're like what the fuck am i seeing what's going on and i knew at that moment i'm like I, I this is this is it this is what helps me overcome my fear of riding a bike because yeah. this is i cannot let this be my yeah, legacy no, in this new middle school everyone's gonna come and be like oh that's the kid who rides around in his mom's bmw that's to, right uh, to deliver newspapers that, yeah that's right yeah so that's so funny <laughs> Yeah, so uh, so I got this paper route, and so I had been introduced to the new middle school I would be going to. And in that middle school, they had those like produced in the eighties pamphlets of like, "Hey, are you a victim of abuse?" And like, oh, I saw yeah. the term like, "Are you a latchkey kid?" Yeah, and I picked yeah. it up, and I'm like, "I've never heard this term. What is yeah, this?" Yeah, and I remembered I asked my parents because they had in South Dakota they had run this auto parts store. I mean, they had to bust acid. They were working 80 hours a week at that thing. Wow. And so it's like very often after school was out, we'd be late getting picked up 
or we would have to go straight back to that office so they could do inventory and we'd be there past sunset. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they were working all the time there. And I remember just spending countless hours in that auto shop wondering like what's going on. Yeah. But there were times where we also would go straight home mm-hmm. and we'd be the only ones home for a while. Or, you know, we had a babysitter who might come to check in on us. Yeah. And so I remember like asking mom, like, are we allowed to kick it? No, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Take that pamphlet, throw it away. Yeah, <laughs> that's so funny. I would say I was not quite a latchkey kid, but my parents did have to drive about a half hour to get to the school. And I had three brothers and sisters who were in various sports teams. Yeah. So there were certainly times in my life where I would stay after school and go to their after school program. And on occasion, this movie would be played. Yeah. So there was a time in early, I want to say it was elementary school, where the latchkey was separated. You had the older kids who are like sixth, seventh, eighth graders, and you had the younger kids, you know, right. fifth and below. Yeah. And when I got there, the older kids were watching heavyweights. Oh, and I loved heavyweights. Yeah. And so I wanted to stick around. And they're like, no, you got to go upstairs. You got to go where the little kids go. And I was like, no, I want to sit around and watch this movie. Yeah, yeah. Heck yeah. And uh, and so I missed out on that opportunity. But this was one of those movies that for a while it became unavailable. It was one of those movies that Disney had released. I think it was on VHS. And I don't think we never owned it on VHS. But I remember it came around on DVD. And that was a really big deal because yep. it was hard to find for a while. And it came out on DVD. Uh, it was really great, and I watched it a lot. Then in 2014, something magical happened, and it actually got released on Blu-ray, which was kind of wild for a couple of reasons. One, it's an obscure Disney movie from the 90s, and yeah. those don't get the Blu-ray treatment. Nope. But more importantly, this was the first time that the movie had ever been released in its original aspect ratio. Yeah. So on the VHS and the DVD, it was full screen, no way. which meant that you weren't getting yeah. the, the sides of the frame. That's right. And so for the first time, we now got the sides of the picture that people saw in the movie theaters, mind you, mm-hmm. but that we lost to home video. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a really interesting thing. And I didn't also realize as a kid what a killer comedy cast this would ultimately have. Yeah. You know, I knew Ben Stiller, of course. Yeah. But then I didn't really know Jerry Stiller and Ann Mira. I didn't really understand yeah, their but, role no, in Ben's it, life and like kind of that they were his parents and they were comedy legends their yeah. own right. That's what it was my parents. Well, the first time we watched this, they were like, you know, that's his parents, right? I'm like, yeah. what? I think Mind it was the blowing. first Ben Stiller movie I'd seen. Or the oh, first yeah. time I'd seen him. Because I think movie. he really wasn't in the 90s. He didn't really make kids. And he doesn't really make kids movies for the most part, but definitely something a bit different. But then, of course, Paul Feig and then Judd Apatow wrote it. And I now see it as a product. Did you ever watch the Larry Sanders show? You ever seen no. It? Okay. So you can now put heavyweights in the timeline of Larry Sanders. So Larry Sanders show was a show on HBO mm-hmm. is by this guy, Gary Shandling. So I don't know Gary if you're familiar. familiar okay. with, yeah. So Gary Shandling had the show and it was a show about the reality of being a talk show host. Mm-hmm. So a part of the show was that you'd see the, the clips from the talk show and they say cut and the cameras would then move in and you'd see them talk as the cameras weren't rolling. And they would basically be actors playing themselves. And this was one of the first times that we got this. You know, obviously other shows like Entourage and Kirby Enthusiasm would do it later. Um, But this was one of those first examples of that. And it was really kind of a revolutionary show. Judd Apatow was writer and Jeffrey Tambor was one of the main characters in it. And uh, the thing about Jeffrey Tambor is that he ended up playing a very similar character in Heavyweights to his role in Larry Sanders' show. So I'm watching Larry Sanders and I'm like, 
I understand because they made heavyweights midway through Larry Sanders. So it's like you have Larry Sanders one, two heavyweights and the rest of the series. And I'm like, oh, this totally fits in to what they were doing in the early 90s. Yeah. And of course, you can then draw the parallels. You, know, you look at what these guys have been up to since then. Yep. Obviously, like all of these major movies and different things. And so it's fascinating that at the time, these were seeds that were planted. I didn't really appreciate until later that I was able to draw them up. And one of the reasons that Heavyweights actually got the Blu-ray treatment was because This Is 40 was coming out. So Disney was trying to cash in on the promotion for This Is 40. And so they kind of brought the Blu-ray into the play at that time. So that's one of the reasons why we ended up getting a Blu-ray for Heavyweights. But yeah, not to talk too much about Heavyweights, but that was such an influential movie. For sure. I had no idea what a linchpin it was. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting because there are certain movies that coming back to Ghostbusters or any movie that you watch as a kid that you rewatch later, the movie is still the same. The thing that's changed is you. And they talk about that in uh, 12 Monkeys, which is a great Terry Gilliam film. And in it, Bruce Willis goes to a movie theater to watch a movie. I think it's an Alfred Hitchcock movie in the movie theater that they go see. And he's remarking how this is the first time that he's seen it since he was a kid. He went to the movie theater as a kid. And the idea is that films are static. They're constant. They're not changing. But they feel like they're changing because the world around them changes. We change. We grow. We have different perspective. So when you watch a movie, it can feel different, even though it's it's always been the same. There's nothing different about it, but it's just all of the things around it that have changed that makes it feel different. This is what my mom has said a few times about reading The Great Gatsby. She mm-hmm. loved it as a high schooler and then read it again as an adult and hated it. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Absolutely. So this comes to the point of the show where we give you the remote control. Oh my God. And we basically want to yeah have an open discussion about anything that is interesting to you, some movies you've seen, movies you haven't seen. Uh, we can go movies, we can do TV shows, we can do whatever. I'm going to give you okay. the remote, and Great. this could be free association. I have no idea if there... Yeah. I, I'd, I'd assume already. there's stuff in here that, that you might be able to find. But yeah, feel free to kind of poke around Thank and you. Uh, see whatever you want. So we talked about the Royal Tenenbaums, mm-hmm. and I remember really feeling like when I saw that in theaters in Sheridan, Wyoming, as a high schooler, I think it, to me, it's part of what made me want to go to film school. Yes. Because I thought, to me, when I saw that, I thought, oh my God, I'm living to see the medium change. And mm-hmm. this is what the new medium is going to be. Yeah. And to me, when I saw the Royal Tenenbaums and just captivated by it, my brother had a circle of really eccentric friends that always kind of represented that kind of cooler element that I was always curious about. Since, you know, deciding that Ghostbusters wasn't for me and I couldn't be a part of the cool kid lifestyle, Mm -hmm. my brother was keeping that alive. Mm -hmm. And so he had some people who were very knowledgeable about film, and they were the ones who introduced me to one of my favorite movies, RoboCop. Mm-hmm. Which I when I saw like that guy melt in like acid, that was like a mind yeah, melting oh, totally. moment for me as yeah. a middle schooler. But once a week they would bring over a movie and then they would all watch it in the basement and I would, you know, get to watch in the corners as well. Mm-hmm. And advantageous socially to have an older sibling because you can kind of see what works well, what doesn't mm-hmm. and decide for yourself, like what kind of persona you want. Yeah, there's a little bit of a drawback to that. Like when I was in 10th grade, a lot of my brother's former friends who are still in that high school would ask me to be as funny as Ted or just expect (laughs) me to be another iteration of Ted, which of course, you know, my brother, I'm not. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, totally. But yeah, I think it took me some time to kind of make a name for myself. But 
a lot of advantages, one of which was watching this movie, Rushmore. I just wanted to see mm-hmm. when this came out because I begged my parents to send me to a boarding school when I was growing up. Oh, interesting. And so Rushmore in 1998 makes sense because I went to a boarding school between 99 and 2000. Okay. And so this must have also been some really influential media to me. Mm-hmm. Another one, I think 1995 was a really big year as well. Of course, Nintendo 64, but also uh, one of my favorite video games, Earthbound, came out. I haven't played that. Uh, yeah. Is they, it a great game? It Not only is it a great game, it is uh, now available on the Nintendo Switch. Oh, so you can download it so from you the can store. Download, yeah. I, I, I highly recommend that you get into it. I highly recommend it, but with some caution. Okay. Because the, the joy that I felt for it when I played through it around this time of 98 may be different now in the context of 2022. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course it will be. Because the same joy that I felt for Day of the Tentacle when that came out, Mm -hmm. it was really at the cutting edge. It did things that I didn't know a video game could do. Mm -hmm. And maybe still there have been a lot of people who have been inspired by Earthbound. Toby Fox comes to mind with Undertale. Mm-hmm. And now Delta Rune. That's a whole fascinating story to me. Getting a little bit into the weeds here about Toby Fox, like it's really fascinating to me that somebody who seven years ago was an unknown person has this incredible internet following now and the fan art has just gone insane. I think to me, I would be afraid of producing some kind of media that has had the effect on the world that Undertale has had. Because mm-hmm. I don't know how somebody who, I forget how old he is, he's younger than us, I think. But he, I don't know how, how does someone get trained to deal with what the world puts on you yeah. when you release some media that people find really influential. Anyway, so I saw Rushmore. Harry Potter was also big at the time. Yeah. And then I played Earthbound and there's like a boarding school scene in Earthbound. So that was like three really highly influential pieces of media that really kind of, I thought to me, as this rural kid in, in Wyoming, told me like I need to be at a school or at a place where I can get a higher level of of education. Yeah. Make my parents life of privilege that we talked about. They agreed. We went on like the school tour. So we went to the East Coast first. Mm. We saw I want to say Claremont McKenna. Or is that a college out here? I don't even remember. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that one. Claremont McKenna might be a boarding school on the East Coast where we had a connection who had gone. Okay. So I toured the campus but I was really put off by we stayed at some bed and breakfast and the lady was talking about her interior designer. And I thought, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, this yeah, this is not for me. And then we went to Kent, also on the East Coast. Okay. And we were in a room at Kent talking about what I might bring to the campus. And the lady said something about how we weren't going to belong there that really pissed off my mom. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't figure out. And so I was like kind of a long conversation between my mom and I about like, what is this kind of classism that you felt we were experiencing? Or I didn't even know what classism was at the time. Yeah. So it's totally new to me. It's like this lady told me we don't belong there. I was like, okay, cool. Thanks. Yeah. Like, see ya. Yeah. It didn't really <laughs> register in the same level that it did for your mom. No. And then the third school we toured was in Minnesota, not the East Coast. It was uh, Shattuck St. Mary's. That's where I went okay. for, it for a year. Yeah. So I saw they had a musical theater department. I was really interested in that. Like I sang with the choir director and, you know, he said, hey, you know, you got a good voice. And so I thought, hey, maybe this is where I could go. I had no idea that it was a huge hockey school. Mm. And so it wasn't until I got there that I realized most of my classmates were extremely mm. skilled at hockey and like would take time to celebrate the fact that they would beat the shit out of each other. And so it's like, <laughs> I, w- I thought that I was going to like this refuge of artistic children yeah. and then ended up at this sports school and I hated sports. Yeah. <laughs> like I was, I was a very rule following kid, but at the time there was like a sports requirement and I would just hide in my room. And eventually, like, they would come knock on my door and be like, okay, you need to choose a sport and you need to start to do it. Mm-hmm. And this is where I started to try to circumvent rules a little bit, I think, because I tried to create a bowling league. 
Oh, and I wrote a letter to the president of the, wow. and it was like, I think it's important that we have a bowling league, and I think it's this like is something we can Max do. Max Fisher and all of his extracurriculars. Well, okay, you know? so yeah, that's it. So Max Fisher and all of his extracurriculars, I think, was the first time I had seen what? What do you call it? Paragon is the top of something like what? Yeah, you can, Paramount maybe. Yeah, Paramount. Yeah, yeah. it's like the figure that you can try to represent. Mm-hmm. And to me, my whole goal from ninth grade onward was to be so academically advanced that I could get a full ride scholarship to an Ivy League school. Oh, wow. Yeah. Spoiler alert. It didn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough one to fight. You know? Yeah. It's a tough thing to win. Yeah. And so, I mean, I was really, I was at boarding school and it, I got a little bit disillusioned from it. So I ended up coming back home after that first year. But in that year that I was there, I had learned to do laundry on my own. I had learned how to budget because we had a weekly allowance of 25 bucks, which, mm. I mean, it blows my mind now, but there was a way to stretch that to where if you spent it wisely, you could still order pizza on Friday and huh. still have enough left over to get snacks throughout oh, the wow. week. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. And so, yeah, 25 bucks won't even get you lunch in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, right? right. Yeah. Let alone for a whole week. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it was a tumultuous time of growth. I had a lot of like fights on the phone with my mom mm. at the time, but there was a lot of I'm glad you clarified that on the fact because I was like, wait, were you getting into scraps in the schoolyard? Like, well, I don't honestly, know. Uh, the the few fights that I like the fist fights that I did have as a kid were all at that boarding school because mm-hmm. there was no separation. You had no privacy. There was no refuge. Mm-hmm. The, there was a I'm still in touch with the priest from the school, Father Henry Doyle. Great guy. But he's got this amazing practice of like sending everybody a handwritten birthday card. Mm. And so it was like mesmerizing to me that even years after I left the school, he was still doing it. It's got got to be a religious practice or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really, really cool. And had a lot of really interesting teachers. I was just telling my in-laws about my math teacher because this was the first school I went to where there were real consequences. I failed a spelling quiz and I was like mesmerized by that because at the public school in Wyoming it's like if I didn't study which I never wanted to I could still kind of wing it and get it like a B B Mm minus and that was enough to avoid the stern talking to my parents and that was good enough and it wasn't until I got here that there were real consequences for not studying Mm -hmm. but talking like a little bit about okay so you learn that there's consequence in the world you learn that media can motivate you to really change who you are in this world. And so you start to buy into that. And wisely so, I think the importance of story is so critical. And so it's like, you know, at the time I thought I needed to go, like if I didn't have that full ride scholarship to an Ivy League school, then I was a failure in life Mm -hmm. or whatever. And of course, I've since revised that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Philosophy through the help of other stories. But it's like, of course, the generosity of my parents helps me understand, like, why would I fight at all with my mom over the phone when Mm -hmm. it's like, I look at what the tuition they're charging at Shattuck St. Mary's now. It's mind boggling. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, That they would have spent all All of this money to ensure that you had quality education. Yeah, Yeah. It was absolutely bizarre. But yeah. And so... When I returned home and I tried to reintegrate to public high school and I tried to reestablish some of the social bonds that I had, there was really like almost no going back because mm-hmm. it was like, okay, now I've, I'm going to this public high school. I'm not maybe on the same academic path that I was. I had some teachers that I could kind of see through the cracks now. It's like, this is a waste of time. This mm-hmm. is not just a waste of my time. It's a waste of everyone's time. And I had a Shakespeare teacher and I... I learned to love Shakespeare when I was at this boarding school because they took us to see a production of Twelfth Night at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis. And it Mm. blew my mind. 
Yeah. I didn't know that Shakespeare could be fun to watch or that the story would be engaging or yeah. still culturally relevant. And I got all of those at the age of 15. Hmm. And so when I got back, I signed up for a Shakespeare class because, wow, I had this amazing Shakespeare experience. And it was like how to kill Shakespeare 101. Because <laughs> yeah. it was like you had this giant Shakespeare text and then you did popcorn reading of the characters with no discussion about what the hell they were talking about or what mm. the meaning of it was or the cultural significance. Yeah. And the quiz was very rote based about what happened to who and when. And so I, I felt for some years at 10th grade, 11th grade that life was just over. I had chosen incorrectly <laughs> to return home yeah. and that I was not on the path of destiny than I was. And frankly, kind of as an adult, I look back and realize, thank God. Like I try to imagine like if I had gone to Harvard and I was still believing about myself what I believed when I was 15, I would be a whole tied up knot of a mm -hmm. mess of yeah. like what's real, what actually matters, how do you talk to people, yeah. what's going on. It's the humility of working like these low level it's, it's hard to even like say it low level without rolling my eyes a little bit or putting up the finger quotes because what you learn about yourself and people doing any job, especially one that people aren't willing to do or learning through work, because <laughs> that's the other thing. When I came home from boarding school, I, I wanted to continue working. And so I, I got a job at a movie theater. And oh, had nice. some, yeah. And I think I was making five dollars an hour. That was huh. minimum wage at the time. Yeah. Yeah. In, in Sheridan, Wyoming. Get paid in popcorn. Paid in popcorn. Yep. And I remember like taking the five dollars and going over to Dairy Queen and buying a blizzard for three fifty. Yeah. And being like, did I really just work forty five minutes of my life so that I could have this tiny little Yeah, and I was like right. the trade off. So the whole make. Yeah. yeah, like the whole like zoom out uh That's that so funny. About. So I think I had a huge chip on my shoulder when I got back to high school and it wasn't until my senior year that I was able to start socializing again. And mm -hmm. I I understand now why I was the pariah that I made myself out to be. Uh, when I went back to that mm -hmm. high school. And I, I don't know if you have a similar experience where you might beat yourself up a lot for the decisions you made as a kid without realizing that it was 16 years ago mm -hmm. or 18 years ago. And yeah. Like, how much has changed since then? It's oh, absolutely. I mean, there's certainly things that I can point to, decisions that I've made that I wish could have gone differently. But two things are true. One, I wouldn't be here today mm -hmm. if it wasn't for the culmination of everything that's happened to me in the past. So I recognize that for good or for bad, everything that's happened ever to me has formed me into the person that I am today. So I recognize that even removing one negative thing may result in me being a totally different person. And the other is that the past is the past. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you can think about how you should have said this or you should have done this thing differently. But at a certain point, all of this is irrelevant. So I don't know if you ever get it where you are beginning to fall asleep and you're just kind of thinking about your day, thinking about life or whatever. And sometimes old memories can pop up yes. and old things. And one of the most comforting things that I've ever felt as a human being is thinking about something that you were incredibly stressed about way back when and realizing that it didn't matter at all. Oh, my God. It's such a freeing feeling thinking about, you know, if you were at school studying for a test or you uh, were at like a family gathering, that you didn't want to be there and be like, oh, when are we leaving? I'm so bored yeah, or whatever. Yeah. It's like, OK, well, now I'm in the present moment. None yeah. of that is happening. Yeah. I don't have to worry about any of this. And 
that I feel like is the freedom that comes with being an adult is recognizing that this system, the structure that basically guided you to where you are today. We're talking schooling, we're talking college, we're talking, you know, even career path, everything like that. Things that led you up until this moment were important in the moment, Mm -hmm. but now they can't affect what's happening right now in the sense of like, we're here in a room, things that happened in college or in high school, Yes, they formed us into who we are today, but they can't change how things are right now. And so I try not to get stuck in the past too much because I know that it's just I don't want to say it's a waste of time, but it definitely is not beneficial in the sense of it's not helping me in the present moment. Yes. However, you can obviously take lessons of like, oh, well, when that happened last time, I did the wrong thing. So in the future, I can do the right thing. That is all important. But to beat yourself up over things that happened, you know, 15, 20 years ago, yeah. we have to live in the present. Yes. And and living in the present is important. Alan Watts, you know, we, we had mentioned this at kind of a brunch earlier. He had a quote about how everyone thinks the past influences the present. He goes, that's how the standard is. Everything that has happened in the past influences the present. But he goes, actually, reverse is true. Present moment influences the past. And he goes, it's so important to understand that because the things that we do in in the present become the past. Mm. And so when we think about the present in terms of the past, we kind of get caught up in like, oh, I can't believe that happened or whatever. We're constantly thinking about things that have already transpired and we can sometimes you know, let that affect the present, but we need to be thinking about the present moment as if we're viewing it from the future as the past. No, do you mean this in a context point of view? So you're taking this moment to think about the past, you realize different things about what happened because they make more sense to you. Like the conversations I was a part of where I didn't realize that this classist conversation was happening at Kent, mm-hmm. the boarding school. It's like, I didn't realize what was happening at the time, but now knowing what I know mm-hmm. about the world and my parents and what a boarding school is to begin with, I understand that that's what was happening. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly a part of it. The other part of it is recognizing that the decisions we make in the present moment become the past. Oh. So as a result, if we get so hung up on the past that we're thinking about, oh, I need to be doing things better. It's like, let's just focus on the present moment because the things that we do in the present become the past. And so we have to think about the present moment as if we're living in the future looking at the present moment gotcha. as the past. That makes more which sense. Which is so convoluted no, and no, like no. crazy philosopher of his own okay. ass sort of thing. No, no, but, no. I get it. Like, yeah. it's like, you know, why waste time thinking like, oh, I wish I could go back to high school and make the decisions differently based mm-hmm. on what I know now. Just put yourself in the shoes of your 70-year-old self and say, thank God I get to wake up as a 36-year-old mm-hmm. and relive what I would have done differently. Yeah. It's so, there's so many different things that this applies to in life and like, for me, just thinking about the choices that I made going to college, and I, I wouldn't say I regret going to college where I did, but I definitely recognize that it charted a course for me, and the course that I'm on is a longer and more difficult path than had I gone to university in California. Mm-hmm. If I had wanted the career that I have right now, I could have taken a path in life that would get me there in a shorter amount of time. Mm-hmm. And that sucks to realize that. (laughs) I mean, especially, you know, in the present moment, you're like, wow, I'm doing something in eight years that it takes some people three years to do. Right. You know, it's like that's obviously a frustrating thing. But having the knowledge of all of this doesn't change anything. 
it's also discounting a bunch of lessons that you might not get to unpack until oh, yeah. in the future. Absolutely. And and again, we are the culmination of everything that has transpired up until this present moment. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't be the same person that you are today right. if you didn't have those life experiences. You didn't take that path or whatever. So it's a hell of a conversation. And I think that when I went to boarding school expecting one thing to happen and then it didn't. And then I went back home expecting something to happen and then that didn't either. It's like I felt like really lost mm-hmm. at the time. And I feel like maybe I would have I, I know I would have gained a lot of insight from having the conversation that you and I just had. But like nobody was having that conversation and I didn't even know how to request a conversation around that topic or even that that was a topic. And so it was like stories that motivated me to go out. And so then I looked back at the stories and I developed a little bit of resentment with Rushmore Mm -hmm. because it was like, well, actually, this believing what this movie was about actually kind of got me into trouble. Mm -hmm. And so why should I make Max Fisher the kind of person that I would try to be? Because if I'm in 11th grade, I think I still did that. I ran for president of student council, which meant that I was in charge of prom, which I did a terrible job (laughs) of executing. And it was like it wasn't really getting me to where I I think I wanted to be or where I felt that I needed to. And so I felt a lot of anxiety about it. And I I went back to the movie looking at it and I was just so frustrated with how Mm -hmm. I felt misleading it was. Yeah. I think that I don't know. I I'd be curious to watch it again because I wonder if I would still feel that kind of resentful about it. Absolutely. And I think there are certain aspects about the movie that, I mean, I didn't go to boarding school, so I don't have the insider knowledge. But I feel like there are certain elements about boarding school that tend to get romanticized. As a result, it sometimes can make it look more appealing than it actually is. And I think that with Rushmore in particular, you saw how many extracurriculars he was like, there's all nobody these, would have the time. Nobody, nobody would, have. would have the time. Right? right. Not only that, but it's like the school of funding for all this sort of no. stuff. Like, obviously, it was, a, you know, a well off preparatory school. But ultimately, there are so many things like that where you watch the movie as a younger person and you just accept all that. And it tends to build up this misrepresentation of this lifestyle of what it's like to go to a boarding school, of the education system, everything like that. It's a movie, obviously. No one's going around necessarily thinking it's real life. But I think there are certain aspects of it that you might presume to be akin to real life. Yeah. So trying to draw a greater lesson out of this, I think what I saw or how Rushmore kind of motivated me to an action that I might not have taken otherwise I know that because that happened to me, that can happen for a lot of people. And when just from seeing a movie being inspired, maybe without even consciously realizing like, oh, I want to do this. I, I want to buy a leather jacket because yeah. I saw Wolverine yeah. you know, or something like that. Like, what are the stories of today inspiring the next generation into action for? Mm-hmm. And I think, I don't know. One of the new headlines I haven't done enough research about is that there's a greater trend towards nihilism for this generation than mm. have been in previous generations. Interesting. And I'm curious if that's a consequence. Uh, if A, if that's even true, which again, I need to do more research to find out. Yeah. But B, if it's true, is it a consequence of the kinds of stories that we're telling? Because I think that there are some days I come home from work, I'm just depressed. I want to watch something that's futuristic and inspiring. Futuristic and inspiring is a really narrow genre anymore. Mm -hmm. The first thing that comes to my mind is Star Trek The Next Generation, Mm -hmm. right? You have this is where you had the vision of a better future that we saw in the 90s. I grew up with it. And, you know, it's one of those things of not just the technology is better, but also Mm -hmm. the humanity is better. So what might that look like? Mm -hmm. 
I can't tell you another series off the top of my head uh, that has an exploration of that as a concept. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is part of the reason that if nihilism is more prevalent, why people would be more depressed in this yeah. generation than previously. I think that's such an interesting observation because I think that show in particular, there, there's this idea that technology will bring about a utopia in society where we can break down certain barriers and, and unite as a, as a human race. And unfortunately, the reality is that it seems like technology has divided us to a certain extent. <laughs> right. I mean, obviously, there are lots of aspects of like, you can be online, you can be anybody that you want to be like, we can remove race from that equation. But ultimately, removing our names and being anonymous online has really shown our true colors in a lot of ways. And I think that people are willing to be more vocally racist and to say awful things when they don't think that whatever they say is going to get back to them. Yeah. You have like one new version of Star Trek after another coming out Mm -hmm. in Paramount Plus. You got the animated kind of jokey adult swim style animation Mm -hmm. one. You've got like three headliners that are all trying to explore like, okay, well, what if the, what if you had a different captain, right? Yeah. And I think that they're struggling to find the same kind of gravitas that the next generation or the original series had because it seems like they're a little bit lost on what must be necessary for humanity to develop this level of technology without destroying itself. Yeah. Like the Carl Sagan cosmos questions of Mm -hmm. the late seventies, like we're just on this pale blue dot. Yeah. So many people are fighting for a larger share Mm -hmm. of something and like names are getting written down in the history. Yeah. We're just owning a small fraction of this impossibly small part of the known universe. And since we've been hearing that for the last 50 years, what have we done with what that lesson has, has brought to us? And, it seems that the answer is not a whole lot, yeah. although maybe I'm even wrong about that. I think that there are great strides being taken in like reducing the amount of global poverty that are hard to publish because the data is obscure mm-hmm. or because the stories don't spread as quickly as teacher yells about pomegranates because she doesn't believe in free speech or, yeah. you know, whatever yeah, the totally. headline is, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that whatever the next step is. It is going to rely on a greater level of critical thinking. And I think that it's very easy to make the case that we as humanity are not capable of the level of critical thinking required. But I'm I'm more optimistic than that. I think we're going to find a way out. And I don't know exactly how. Yeah. But I, I think we're we're on the cusp of it. I definitely think critical thinking is, is key. And I think just bringing back to Star Trek for a second, best science fiction is a form of social criticism that allows us to analyze about our current situation. And I think, you know, Star Trek, all of that stuff is there. You just kind of have to read a little bit. It's like a lot of the plot lines and whatnot. It's an allegory about race. It's an allegory about, you know, nationalism or like whatever. There was always, and, you know, I think a great example is like the Twilight Zone episodes, Mm -hmm. like all the stuff in the 60s, there was social commentary happening. And the best science fiction was able to, even though it was taking place in a world different from ours, it highlighted things that were happening in our current world. And I think the problem here is that when you get so focused on the form and you lose sight of the message in that Star Trek is a science fiction and special effects, and it sometimes can lose that original spark that may have made it a social commentary in the first place. And so you have people who are talking about how Star Trek and other science fiction shows would critique the American culture. They would bring about dialogue. 
And then you had people who wanted to be Spock and they would be like, yep. pew, pew, with my lasers <laughs> and whatnot. And, but that's the thing is it's yeah. like there's multiple layers going on yeah. and people are enjoying something, but they're mm-hmm. enjoying it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Which I don't want to be elitist no. about anything. Well, this is great. Okay. So I know very little about psychology, as I've said before, but Jean Piaget and kids playing games. There's more to it than okay. you might think when you see kids playing games. Bring it back to Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. right? The little toy proton packs and kids are like running around yeah. zapping ghosts with these things. Isn't it interesting that when you see kids playing Ghostbusters, you would be very surprised to see kids playing Ghostbusters and then quizzing other kids around what's on the other side of cards and then zapping them because that happened in the Ghostbusters movie. Mm-hmm. But when kids are playing Ghostbusters, they never do the part where Bill Murray's being an asshole yeah. or a scientist. Yeah. They're always doing the part where they got the proton packs on yeah. and they're running around mm-hmm. because even kids when they're seeing something and they're learning from it there's some rubric already in place mm-hmm. that helps them kind of glom onto some lessons and run with them yeah. and discard the rest of the noise that it, like yeah. beyond understanding or maybe this is also part of something but it's, it's not and they're Absolutely. not and they're not just saying lines verbatim from the movie mm-hmm. they're making up their own lines or yeah. you know they're like adding new circumstances yeah. it's, just, it's so funny you say that because in film theory you have the term salient mm-hmm. so the idea is that what elements of the film are salient what are the things that are most memorable that stick with you and the answer to that varies depending on obviously a lot of different things but it's so interesting to me as a kid watching some of these movies the salient elements are different than what I'm watching as an adult. Mm-hmm. And I recognize that, and there's several movies that I can think of where I remember a very specific part of the movie, but it turns out that was like the climax, the very end of the movie. And yeah. I recognize none of the, what the rest right. of the movie is sure. going on. And so as a kid, what about the movie sticks out to you? And oftentimes it's not just people talking. Like mm-hmm. that doesn't appeal to you as kids. It's like some sort of action, some sort of, comedic slapstick, some sort of whatever has to stick out to you to make it a bit more memorable. So I think it's interesting that, like you said, when you have kids playing Ghostbusters, they weren't acting out the ghost bedroom scene (laughs) or whatever. It's like, this is something totally different, right? So it's about what do kids see when they see this movie? Right. What sticks with them? What do they understand? Mm-hmm. Because we can be so focused on the form of the thing that we sometimes miss out on the content. Totally. There's so many examples of people who try to mold their personality to certain film characters. Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver or okay. um, Patrick Bateman from American Psycho. Oh, yeah. Or Jordan Balfort from Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. There's film archetypes, essentially. Yeah. And obviously, these are different characters with their yeah. own problems and whatnot. But there's a certain type of online person who thinks these people should be idolized mm-hmm. because they looked cool in the movie or whatever. Right. Somebody made, like, if you're idolizing them, you missed the point. Starter pack. Oh, I love that. And so they listed, <laughs> they just put a bunch of pictures of everybody from, like, Tony soprano oh, to exactly. like walter yeah. white and like yep. all these characters where it's yep. like if you think that what they're doing is cool, cool or whatever yeah. then it's like you're yeah. missing the context of what the yeah. show is trying to say sure it's like you're idolizing this person but actually the point of the show was to vilify them right. and david chase the guy who created the sopranos it was talking about in interviews how upset he was at the fan reaction because his thing was he wanted tony soprano the main mob guy 
to be a very despicable and unlikable person, but people were idolizing him. They were like, this guy's the coolest. We're going to put him on t-shirts. And he's like, you guys are missing what I'm trying to tell you here. This is basically a parable about the problems of greed and virtue and all these things. And it's like, you guys are just totally missing it. I hate to tell you that I was in film school for the finale of The Sopranos and I heard everybody talking about that. Mm -hmm. I completely missed the phenomenon, but it is on my list. So while we're here, we're going to play a little Six Degrees of Separation. Okay. Do you see anybody that we want to jump off into? Well, I just finished the first season of Succession. So Brian Cox is on on the mind. Yes. Uh, I forgot he was in The Born Identity. That was was one of the first books I read voluntarily. At the time, I was really struggling with reading and comprehension and stuff. But when I sat down to read that, it was like it wasn't part of an assignment. Nobody told me to do it. I just want to see what this is about. That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. One of my friends in high school wanted me to go see The Born Ultimatum. I didn't see the first two movies. So I just went into The Born Ultimatum and I was like, this is a crazy action. Like I had no idea what any. So of course I had to go back and watch the first two. And yeah, Brian Cox is great in it. I knew him first from a little tiny movie that debuted at Sundance 20 years ago. This little movie called Super Troopers. Oh God. You talked about having uh, heavyweights memorized line by line. I went yeah. to college with a guy who had this movie. Oh my gosh. Line yeah. Line. It's obviously a ridiculous movie. It's obviously problematic in a lot of ways. Yeah. It kind of feels like it's a loosely strung together sketch comedy movie. There's somehow Brian Cox pulls it all together and he does a really great job in it. Are we trying to bring this back to Ghostbusters with the six degrees? Oh, no, so we can we can go anywhere. All right. I'm going to open up the Born Identity. Chris Cooper always, uh, he reminded me of uh, my friend's father. So every time oh, yeah? I saw, yeah, who was just a really good guy. So anytime nice. I see him, it's like I automatically feel that profile. I've, uh, yeah, I've seen only a couple of Chris Cooper movies, uh, but I know his face. Like I know the guy. Yeah. But yeah, he, at least in the movies I've seen, he had been playing kind of the untrustworthy character. Right. Which is so interesting yeah, yeah. that like, but he gave off trustworthy vibes. At yeah. least from the dad. Yeah. So yeah. it was always maybe it made it more uh, exciting. When That's so interesting. Yeah. Because I remember him from American Beauty. Yes. You know, he gave like very stern, authoritative dad, maybe something going on behind the scenes. And American Beauty, I think, was the first time I heard my father's strong opinion about a movie. Oh, I mean, yeah. He really hated it. Oh, I yeah. It, I thought this movie was disgusting. And that's so we later found out things about Kevin Spacey. Well, that, obviously, you know, right? Yeah. And, and that's what's crazy. I mean, there are so many roles that Kevin Spacey took that <clears throat> nowadays you realize you're like there definitely seems to be problems with that. But apparently it was like an open secret. People in the industry knew for a long time about what was going on with Kevin Spacey, but they just kept their mouths shut because yeah. they kept the paychecks coming. K-Pax, I remember. I think that was one of the movies that came out when I was working in a theater. I haven't seen it since it came out. Okay, yeah. Years, but I remember... It's been 20 it, years, so it, it's like... The concept of it, and there's like a line in it. I did as a... Like, he bites a whole banana without peeling it. And then <laughs> yeah. I did that as a joke in high school. Oh, to yeah. like some great fanfare. That's so funny. Um, and also, he says something to the effect of what our concept of the afterlife is, is that you repeat the same life like infinity. Like what we understand around the world is that no matter what happens, the same thing keeps happening and unhappening. Hmm. And so like we think that there's an afterlife. But what actually happens is that if you look at the span of time, you just keep reliving the same life over and over again. And it like blew my mind to hear that. Yeah, totally. What might have been a throwaway line in a movie that came out 21 years ago is something that I remember well enough to bring into casual conversation. There's several Kevin Spacey movies that 
I'd been meaning to see prior to the allegations. And now I'm like, oh, should I be watching these? Like, sure. like where do we, where does this fit in? Everyone talks about the usual suspects. Oh, yeah. I, I, I brought still... this in a casual conversation. You still haven't seen it? No, okay. I haven't, but I even know the twist at the end. Yeah, everyone's talked about sure. it so much. Sure. So it's like, it's tough for me to watch it, but it's supposed to be really great. So I could do this for another three hours. Yeah. But I got a haircut at 2.30. And, um, well, you got to get your haircut, man. Yeah. Your, your yeah. hair's looking a little... Thank I'm you. just kidding. Your hair looks great. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Thank you. this has been fantastic. Oh, uh, before we go, do you have social media? Do, I don't even know yeah. if you're on. I mean, you know, I, post, I post to Twitter maybe once every seven years. So okay, great. So just be waiting with bated breath. My next tweet, it's I'm at Aluminum Guru. Aluminum um, Guru. Yeah. Is that on uh, Instagram or Twitter? Uh, that's your only Twitter. Yeah, only I don't, Twitter. I don't do Instagram. I guess you could look me up on LinkedIn. Yeah, <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. Well, after, Zuck- after Zuckerberg testified in, what was it, 2017, I was like, I, I got to minimize my social media presence. No, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I used to have a website. I even closed that because uh, I got hired. The purpose of the website was to get a different job, which I now have. And so... I hope to come back. Well, thanks so much for coming on, man. Yeah. It, was, it was awesome for you to, to come out here. Great to have some brunch with you and to uh, get to chat with you on the podcast. And yeah. maybe we'll do it again sometime soon. Sounds great. All yeah, right, cool. You. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks, man. So that was my chat with Oliver White. Thanks again to Steve Norelzi, who helped in the edit and with cleaning up the audio frequencies. The music you heard on today's show was Secret Lover by Telepath, So Good by Silver Richards, and Leather and Lipstick by Cat System Corp. If you like what you hear, be sure to support the artists by purchasing their music. I'll be linking to today's music in the show notes. And speaking of music, I'm in the thick of putting together my annual Best Music of the Year episodes, so stay tuned as they'll be dropping in just a few weeks. But until then, stay well and have a great holiday season.